podcast this week, we take a walk down Rye Lane with that film's director and star, Rain Alan Miller and Vivian O'Para, and Marlowe star Liam Neeson adds returning to the Empire podcast to his particular set of skills. Plus, there's also a little Ant-Man spoiler preview with Peyton Reed and writer Jeff Loveness. All that and the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is recording this on St. Patrick's Day. And as a mark of respect, we'll not be doing any Irish accents or any Irish gags (laughs) on this week's podcast. Mm. Because you know what, folks? There's more to the Empire podcast than this. Is that Irish or pirate? Who the hell is that? (laughs) Who the hell is is that? that? Who Who the hell hell is that? is that? (laughs) <laughs> the Empire Podcast is a legitimate political party. <laughs> Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. <laughs> Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Very excited to be recording this on St. Patrick's birthday. Who knew? Got him a big cake. Big snake cake. Snakes. Why do they have to be snakes? <laughs> Why do they have cakes? Why do they have to be cakes? Uh-huh. Uh, a glorious tribute, of course, to the man who drove all the snakes out of Ireland mm. and all the way into the virtual pod booth, which is my way of saying hello to Helen O'Hara and James Dyer. Are <laughs> calling me a snake? But a snake. nice one. A lovely snake. Uh-huh. <laughs> hello, Helen O'Hara. Happy St. Patrick's. How hello, are you celebrating? happy St. Patrick's. Big fat of Guinness. Go on, Jason, get it, don't you? Uh, I... Uh, no, no, I'm wearing green and I am having that, potato bread for lunch. That is such a cliche. Absolutely ridiculous. I am chasing yeah. Dr. Richard Kimball through the streets of Chicago. That's what I'm doing today. Very good. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to go up to everyone I see and just go, Anakin! Uh, and that's going to be my... Anakin, uh, yeah. drop! Drop! Um, yeah, so, so St. Patrick's Day is, is the Irish equivalent of whacking day, right? I beg your pardon, I haven't whacked at not, all Not today. whacking off day, that's entirely different calendar month. Uh, whacking day from The Simpsons. You know whacking day, where they whack the snakes? Oh, I see. No, well, we don't have to do that in St. Patrick's Day. What with there being no snakes? He killed all the snakes. That's, that's kind of the point. Like if it was... So like mm. Conan in the original Conan the Barbarian. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Very, old very classic, much old like classic that. joke. What does St. Patrick say to the snakes as he drove them out of Ireland? Snake, snake, I heard you were dead. You're right in the back there, lads. It's not one of the all-time classic jokes, really, is it? He was, he was driving them no, out of Ireland. Yeah, he was giving yeah, them a yeah. in some sort of Fiat Punto type situation. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how many snakes could one fit in the back of a Fiat Punto? Uh, Sounds like the beginning of a joke. Yes. <laughs> all the snakes in Ireland, apparently. So, yeah, well done, There wouldn't be that many of them. But yes, uh, Ireland, one of the few countries on the planet that doesn't have any snakes. I don't believe you. You must have slow worms. Well, no, they, they like to be called the DUP. Hey! <laughs> political humor for got, you there. Oh, got God. a little bit of political there in the Empire yeah. podcast, just for two seconds. The, the, the voice of Chris Hewitt will be replaced by an actor's voice for the rest of this podcast. Hello, I'm Chris Hewitt. <laughs> Welcome to the Empire podcast on the movie podcast that is very, very well spoken. <laughs> oh, people are not going to get that joke unless they're very old and used to watch the news. Um, yeah. Basically, yes. the voices of Sinn Féin politicians used to be dubbed. There was a law that said they had to be dubbed before they could be put on the thing. And this was meant to create Who a hassle factor law? that would... And what was its goal? It was it was to create a hassle factor to avoid them being interviewed regularly. But in fact, so what ended up happening was them, just... essentially. Yeah, they would just dub the voices. There's an amazing guy on the day-to-day. I think it's the day-to-day where uh, they have Steve Coogan, who does an amazing Irish mm. accent. A Northern Irish accent. Who the hell is that? Uh, who the hell is that? Um, 
and they have him playing a Shin Vein politician, but he has to take a, a hit from a helium balloon before he can speak. <laughs> it's very, very funny. Shin Vein is the legitimate political party. Um, which <laughs> makes me laugh. Ah. Uh, <sighs> Political humor. Isn't it? Isn't it? Fun times. Oh. Fun times. Fun times. The Fun best times, of times in Ireland. Uh, Jumbo, how are you celebrating St. Patrick's Day? Are you driving any snakes out of redacted? No. <laughs> I, will not be, I will not be driving snakes anywhere. They can fucking get their own Ubers. I'm not, not yeah. there anywhere. No. They can. Which, yeah. which flavor of tater will you be eating, James? I oh, see. Is this the one that I got in, I'm in trouble for? Well, I can't remember. Were we in Dublin or Belfast when I went there and declared that whatever one, the other taters were the better mm-hmm. ones? I mean, Tatoes. it's all much of a much as they're both shit. <laughs> I mean, they're not walkers, are they? Let's be honest. Yes, they're not walkers. Which the is king to of their credit. Mm, is it though? Yes. I'm saying walkers are the king of crisps. Walkers, of course, the, the crisp of our patron saint, uh, Saint Gary. That's true. Of, That's true. of Linegar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Who stands up for all. <laughs> Anyway, it's possible we've gotten a tiny bit off track already. Yes, we have. We have a question. We have a question. And we have not much time in which to answer this question today because um, (laughs) I'm going on a snake whacking uh, (laughs) later on. (laughs) Big old snake whacking drive. Whacking off snakes. Um, Whacking off snakes. Um, Very hard to do, I'm guessing. Anyway. Anyway, we have a question. We had a lot of questions, actually. But one that has caught my eye came in very, very late in the day from Nandy Selson. Happy Paddy's Day says Nandy Selson. Who is the greatest living Irish person working in film? Ooh. Colin Farrell. Arkin. A Gleeson. A Gleeson. Throw a rock. Pick a Gleeson. Brendan, Donal, any of them. Throw a rock it's and hit a It's probably Brendan or Donal. I mean, I don't know. Is it? I, I mean, out of the Gleesons. Is it? Out of the Gleesons. Out of the Gleesons, yeah, sure. Yeah, there's a there's a Brian Gleason yeah. and there's another Gleason who are maybe not as great as the Gleasons, the other Gleasons. But I don't know. I think did you. I think you might hit the nail on the head with um, Colin Farrell. I think I've hit. Are we head. done with this question? Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis. I mean, uh, yeah. I I don't know that we can totally claim him. Like I feel like he's quite okay. English. Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse Ronan. Saoirse rhymes with Kerry Condon. Your man's the church boss. <laughs> your man. Friday. Your man from that thing. Who's the best Irish person in the MCU? They're very, very. It's very. Not a lot of Irish people in the MCU. Hmm. Uh, no. Well, it's been a. You know, this is a perennial bugbear of mine that you know the mm. Irish don't have enough superheroes, and when even like Banshee, who is Irish, is co-opted and turned into an American for the screen, his voice was dubbed by another actor. I mean, what what's that all about? <laughs> do you know what I mean? So. Um, so yeah, I, I feel the Brotherhood of Mutants is a legitimate political party. <laughs> at least, at least we have Friday, <laughs> part Mark Two. Thank Friday God two. it's Friday. Thank God it's Friday. Yeah. Uh, anyone else? Fastbender. Anyone going to throw a throw a shout in for Fastbender? Yeah. The fast, I mean, the mighty he's, fast. He's German Irish. He's German Irish, yeah. but like he's also like a very much a Kerry man, and you don't get much more Irish than Kerry, do you? So. Um, I think that he he's in with a good shot. I mean, you know, he's he's young. We'll be talking about him later. But Barry Keoghan is is you know coming up coming up fast. He's he's doing really well. Um, he's coming fast on the rails. Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh. I mean, okay, so well, this is the thing. Are we counting the whole of Ireland? Because then that throws open this week's guest, Big it Liam. Does. One Ireland. Yes. You know, Big you Liam. Know, the, the, as Liam would say, the north of Ireland. As Helen, you would say, in your very militant way, you would say the north of Ireland as well. <laughs> very militant. You know, <laughs> very, very militant. 26 plus 6 <laughs> equals 1, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Not 100% sure I agree with your police work in that, Lou, but, uh, but yeah, sure. No worries. Uh, okay. Let's take Ireland. Let's okay. take the, the, um, the island you know, of the Emerald Isle. The island of yeah. Ireland. Uh, let's discount Northern Ireland for the time being. 
so in in terms of other Irish people, uh, Killian Murphy. Yep. Yes. Going to throw Killian Murphy in there. Uh, Richard Harris ruled himself out of the running a few years ago by dying. Uh, but <laughs> but until Meany. then, he was doing well. Colmini. <laughs> don't knock. Don't you nice. Come for, don't knock. Sunsets come are around. nice. A newborn baby is nice. This, this is fucking spectacular. <laughs> Best line of Con Air. Oh, Which is saying oh, something. That is, yes. that is a high bar, but fair enough. <laughs> that's a high bar. <laughs> <laughs> that, may be, that may be the most lowbrow thing we've ever said in this podcast. <laughs> it is, though. As action movies go, it's got some zingers. I don't know. It does have some singers. Uh, let me see. Who else? Who else is Irish? And uh, Paul Mescal. We're talking oh, about yeah. you know, Barry Keoghan, and we're going to be talking about Gladiator 2. Uh, which apparently is set uh, just south of Dublin at the moment. <laughs> it's going to be uh, Paul Mescal and uh, Barry Keoghan yeah. facing off in that one. So that's going to be First we took over them. the Oscars. Now we're coming for Gladiator. I don't know what to tell the you. The Irish are coming. The Irish are coming. <laughs> Maureen O'Hara. I mean, she's dead. So I think she's the question dead. was living. She's dead, James. Oh, did we, oh sorry, but living. But obviously she does get bonus we points for her, for her surname that Indeed. somewhat you Indeed. know counteract yes. the whole being dead thing. But yes, but unfortunately, yes. I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm going to deduct points for her for being dead. Oh, I'm sorry, fine. Maureen. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's for, <laughs> we run a tight ship around <laughs> here at the Empire Podcast. Uh, what about Braunholm? Who you know, I'd almost forgotten it was uh, St. Paddy's Day, and then I woke up today and someone had put that scene from Taffin. Well, maybe you shouldn't be living here, which uh, <laughs> they thought was Pierce Brosnan's advice to the snakes. <laughs> 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 Maybe Buy me a pint. Buy me a pint. I mean, he, you know, he is obviously very, very Irish, but he played the most English icon of he them did. all, he Thomas Crown, and <laughs> <laughs> and I believe there was also a secret agent in there somewhere. I believe there might have been, yes, as well, and a centaur. Yeah, he's got yes. range. He's hung like a horse. He could, he could wow. be a gladiator too, too. Yes, he could be. <laughs> what comes with own sword as a centaur? Just, I don't yeah. know. I'm just. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me see who else is on this list of people I have I've, I've hurriedly Googled. Uh, Jessie Buckley, she's great. She is great. Yeah, she, I thought of her earlier and then I forgot to say her name. But um, but yeah, she. I mean, she's kind of a triple threat. You know, she can sing and dance and stuff as well. She's incredible in women talking. Um, triple threat means a different thing when you're talking about Northern Ireland. But anyway. <laughs> yes, but she's from the South, so we're okay. She's from Cork, she is, I believe. She's fine. Um, but yeah, so she she's um, she's she's pretty great. I still think it's Colin Farrell, just in terms of like just stature, success, you know, um, range. I think he's kind of got everything. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's it's Colin Farrell. It's Colin Farrell. You know, I mean, I unless unless there's a Brendan Gleeson sex tape knocking around, which that oh might boy. that might confirm wow. things. <laughs> Oh, that'd be something, wouldn't it? Do you think? No, I don't think. I no. definitely no. don't think. Never. No? Andrew Scott, did you miss him? Did you miss me? 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 Hot priest. Uh, again, I saw a very funny tweet this week, a bit of an archival tweet, uh, one from the uh, one from the uh, the ages, uh, that said, how does Andrew Scott manage to look like Ant and Dak at the same time? Uh, which... <laughs> I think absolutely nailed him. Um, <laughs> there's no coming back from that's that, the boy Scott. Really <laughs> <good one>. <laughs> <laughs> that's very good. Uh, very Ruth Negger. Ruth Negger. Yes, yeah. that's right. Great. Out of Limerick, yeah. isn't she? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me see. Fiona Shaw. Fantastic. No, she. That's a really good call. I saw her do Medea mm. on stage once, and she's absolutely mind blowing. And obviously, really good in Andor and Three Men and a Little Lady. 
I think those are the main yes. things she's known for. Those are the main things she's known for. Yes, that's right. Yes. Uh, let me see who else is on this list of people I googled. Aiden Turner, mm. Brenda Fricker, yeah. uh, Robert Sheehan, who's always a blast to interview. He's a lot of fun. I think, I think, honestly, I'm going to say Helen got it right, right from the off, and we've just wasted the last 10 minutes. So there you go. Colin Farrell. <laughs> Colin Farrell is the greatest living Irish, as in Southern Ireland, the South of Ireland, the Emerald Isle uh, actor, film type person. There we go. St. Patrick would be pleased with that section. Uh, we are done. Happy St. Patrick's Day to all who celebrate and all who do not, in fact. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, there's really only one way to do it at the moment, and that is to get in touch with me on Twitter. Uh, still, I think I'm still verified. Ha ha! I'm slipping through the net. The tighter you, <laughs> the further you tighten your grip, Elon Musk, the more verified legacy Twitter accounts will slip through your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Cut to me being stripped of my uh, status almost immediately. But you can get in touch with me. I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. Slide into my DMs if you wish, or you can reply to a panic shout out every now and again, as there was one today. Or you can reply to any of my tweets once you've stopped laughing, of course. All right, so we've got a packed show today. So got a couple of guests. We're going to leave the sort of preview of our Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania spoiler special interviews with Peyton Reed and Jeff Loveness. Just very, very short excerpts from, from those interviews. We're going to leave those to the end of the show. So that means you have two choices. You have Big Liam, Liam Neeson, uh, who's the star of Marlowe, directed by Neil Jordan. Uh, or you have Vivian O'Para and Rain Allen Miller, who are the star and director, respectively, of the, spoiler alert, a wonderful Rye Lane. Yes. Rye Lane. So, Rye Lane. 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 Not a million miles away from where I'm recording this right now. This is Rye Lane. Rye in Peckham, isn't it? It is. It's Peckham, yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you which bus I get, lest I give up my assassination coordinates. I already have your assassination <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> you're, you're sending a snake around right now. <laughs> just like just like um what's her name in Kill Bill Volume Two with Yes, the one with the snakes. L L Driver, L Driver, where she yeah. that's I love that scene. Hate snakes, but love that scene. Uh anyway, uh Rye Lane is terrific. It is a uh rom com that is bold and fresh and feels completely new and I loved it and uh, we'll be talking about it later on in the in the show but uh, it stars David Johnson and Vivian O'Para as two people who are getting over bad breakups and they meet up one day just randomly in Rye Lane in Peckham and they embark on a series of adventures and misadventures together and do they bond and slowly but surely fall in love over the course of this day well it's not for me to give it away but yes uh, it is a glorious glorious film I enjoyed virtually every second of it and the one second I didn't enjoy has been burned from my mind forever uh, but I was so enamored with this film that I immediately jumped on Zoom today with the film's director Rain Allen Miller whose debut it is but is one of the most assured debuts I've seen in a long mm. long time and Vivian O'Para David Johnson wasn't available because he's off fighting an alien in the new alien movie directed by Fede Alvarez or maybe playing the alien as we speculated in this interview had a lot of fun talking with them this morning here we go Rain Allen Miller Vivian Apara and me. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast. I've got a frog in my throat. We don't know where that came from. Uh, by the director and star of Rye Lane, Ryan Allen Miller and Vivian Apara. How are you both? Yeah, good very day. well. Thanks. Good, good, good. Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, where in London are you both at the moment? I'm north. 
<laughs> north, just north. Uh, <laughs> I have, uh, do you know what? I was like, do I reveal my location? Don't, 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 Vivian, no. don't, don't, do not reveal your location. You know, don't, don't, don't give me your postcode so, or your mother's maiden name. I, I, I would have I gone absentmindedly. So, yeah. Where are you, Rain? On, a, on, the, on the water. I'm on the water. I'm on a boat in, um, in southeast London, um, which it, luckily, even if I did give you my postcode, I don't think I don't think you'd be able to to find me because getting here is is a bit of a nightmare. It's always like go to the green bus and then turn left, and there's the boat. <laughs> wow, so you're on a boat? Yeah, yeah. I um I bought a boat like two years ago and renovated it. It's a Dutch barge. That's amazing. So what do you do? Do you just flit around London, uh, just to wherever no. wherever the wind takes you? No, this- I'm 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 in South, so I have a mooring in Southeast London. Um, oh. It's quite big, so I couldn't really do the continuous cruising thing, which I was going to do. But this one's massive; like it's a proper, it's a big old Dutch barge. So, <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, do you wave at people as you go past, and do they wave Absolutely. back? Absolutely, I'm a big time boat waver. <laughs> people that don't wave at boats are evil. <laughs> they are, they are, they absolutely are. Uh, not to give too much away for the movie, but that 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 is uh, a, a gag in the movie as well. Is that something that you injected into it, being a a a, a boat a boat lady, Rain? I don't know. I don't know how to describe how you boat, boat person. <laughs> yeah, what is the the? Isn't there a well, captain? No, you're a captain. Yeah, you're a captain. <laughs> I I'm not a captain. I really want to be a captain though. Um, Weirdly, no. Actually, the 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 wave at boats thing came from. I think it was Tom who, Tom Melia, one of the writers. I think he'd said he was a boat waver, and we thought it was really nice. Um, but yeah, we all everyone. The rule is everyone that works on this film is a boat waver. <laughs> Vivian, are you a boat waver? Yes. I'm a boat waver. <laughs> so you see a boat and you just have to, you're just like, I it's, have to wave. It's, it's like a subconscious thing. You're, I feel like when you see a boat, your hand just like goes up, you know. And if it doesn't, it's kind of like, you know, like when you yawn at someone and they don't yawn back to their psychopath. I feel like if your hand yeah. doesn't really go up to wave at a boat, you know, <laughs> there's something a bit crunchy about your psyche. But yeah. <laughs> But Vivian, I have to. I'm not going to drill down into your postcode, but I have to. I have to address this this North London uh, business because there is a there is a North London, South London, South London divide in 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 people's minds. I flitted around. I'm obviously not from London, but I flitted around North and South in my time here. Been here 20 years now, and so I find that London is just London. London is cool. I don't really care whether you're from the don't, North don't or let, South, but let, do you? Don't let the South Londoners hear that. Don't let the South- <laughs> I feel like it's just South Londoners that really ride for South London, and I get it with them. It's fantastic. Um, I love North London. Every place has its specific magic, you know, and everyone feels really um like they they ride hard for it. But um, yeah, no. Let's end post code wars and stand together as one London. Precisely right. Precisely. A- apart from obviously uh, Peckham, which is <laughs> what you're celebrating in in Rye Lane. And South London is being very much celebrated in Rye Lane. So uh, was that difficult for you as a North Londoner to... 
I, like I spent a lot of time in South London. I have like a lot of friends and family and stuff there. So like um, my sister used to tell me that's where you can get your nails done for cheap. So I would be in yeah. South. Um, I like a good pair of nails. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so it was it was okay. I said to David, we're kind of like a Trojan horse because he's from East London and I'm from North and we've come into South London and made this film about South London. But like, we're like, actually not we're like a trojan horse which is there to be like see like anyone like it's, it's for everyone like south is for everyone it, i think you know london is like super idiosyncratic and has like strange nuances everywhere some areas it's just a higher concentration than others um i feel like west green road in um seven sisters reminds me of rye lane reminds me of like areas of west london as well just in like and then they're not the same it's just the types of strangeness feels similar um and so um yeah um it was it was easy to tap into in a way because I'm just a Londoner <laughs> uh, and Rain obviously you are uh you're on a boat so but but you're southeast so you would consider yourself a South Londoner I'm, I'm guessing yeah yeah I mean I'm originally from Manchester I moved to London when I was 12 um, to South London. I've actually, I lived in Hackney for a bit, uh-huh. you know, I wasn't, but, um, but I came back. I love it here. Um, but I think, you know, London generally is a great place, you know, like Britain's great and well, in, <laughs> um, a little bit, but, let's go there. Um, but like, you know, there are so many, you know, where I, where I grew up in Manchester is an incredible sort of area from Moss side originally and that's an incredible mixture of communities and 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 people and mm. and I um I think the thing about Rye Lane is that we were just trying to it was important for me to represent those two particular areas but actually it's touching on something that's true in a lot of places that have strong communities in the UK this is like a this this film sort of showing the black british experience in a slightly different way um and and South London is the is 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 a great place to show that. But I think people from North London will watch it and also go, I can sort of see myself in this. Yeah, absolutely. And people from outside London as well. This is not just a movie for people who are from London or London <laughs> yeah. adjacent. This is uh, I I you know, as I said to you before I, I you know we pressed record, uh I adore this movie and it is so inventive and funny and sweet and charming and 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 rain, it is shot so beautifully and uniquely as well i mean there's a lot of a lot of use of of fisheye lenses and wide angle lenses going on here i mean can you talk about your your approach to the movie from a visual standpoint yeah i think you know the script was about two people wandering around and from the beginning i felt that if you're going to do this it needs to be it needs to feel bold and it needs to break break out of that reality um and so a big thing was to to shoot it in a way that felt like cinema rather than just coverage I'm really not into that sort of like traditional coverage thing like two cameras let's get hoover up all the dialogue you know I wanted it to be authored um one because I enjoy that type of filmmaking but also because I felt the characters deserved that and I felt South London deserved that you know that was a big thing for me to to set it there and to and to shine a light on it um and the lenses you know wide made sense because we were trying to capture the 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 whole of of south london on this journey with two people um but i think the 
I think it just, that was the biggest thing. It deserved to be shot in a way that felt fresh. I also think rom-coms usually aren't, I mean, the ones maybe like from the 90s, early noughties are great and like shot really well, but I hadn't seen one that felt fresh and and sort of cinematic, I guess. Um, but I also just did me, which sounds a bit wanky, but I, you know, I just did me because that's how I like to make films and tell stories. You're absolutely right. I think comedy, and not just rom-coms, but I think comedy in general, uh, there isn't often, they're not often brilliantly shot. You you do get a no, sense that it yeah. is it is about the coverage. It is just by capturing performances and in some cases just capturing the improv and, you know, uh, which can happen in American comedies in, in particular. And then the visuals are an afterthought. Totally. I've I've like overheard or even talked to producers before about comedy stuff, particularly in television. And they're just like, Let's get as much as we can. Who cares? You know, who cares about what it looks like? We just need to cut to the joke. And actually, it's like if you're using, like I remember throughout the process working with Olan Collady, my amazing DP. Um, I was like, let's make it look funny. It needs to look funny. And wide lenses are quite funny, especially when you yeah. go close. You know, and I think visuals can service a lot of the comedy and things. And and you know, using interesting. Um, design like having the worlds that they're in be funny as well as the characters being funny but having the costume be funny like all those details service the comedy um so i totally agree with you it's really weird that it it doesn't often look great but you talked about the characters there and which brings us nicely onto dom and yes vivian uh david so he's not here today is he shooting a new alien movie is that what he's doing right now yeah, <laughs> and, uh, so crazy. It's so exciting. Yeah, I messaged him the other day. I was like, "So, are you going to be the alien, David? Because that would be amazing." amazing. <laughs> Just David in like full, it's full <laughs> like whatever costume. Yeah. <laughs> I did notice there was a sneaky alien queen reference uh, in in the film, but. Yeah, now it kind of ties together nicely. That was definitely like, no one knew at the time, but the universe knew. The universe Have you planted anything in there, Vivian, for yourself? You know, for for casting directors to to take note of. You know, no, I tried to. Um, I make music, and I was asked to like provide like pictures that would go in Yaz's bedroom, and I tried to, but I think I forgot to send a picture of like artwork of my music because I was like, how funny would it be if Yaz was a fan of. Like, oh my god! I wish you yeah. why did you tell me that. I don't know. That's so great! I, I, I just, like, just I would have put that massive as well. <laughs> I know. It's just like a thought in my head. I was like, "That's so funny," um, but yeah, I haven't. But there, I mean, my artist name was Bunny, and there is that Bunny at some point. But that's kind of a, a nod to to something else. We'll do it in the next film. Next film. Which won't be Rylane 2, by the way. Ah, I just mean it's a different so, film. So, so no, sorry. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. You know, but there's there's part <laughs> of me would like to see just, you know, Dom and Yaz just dropped into any situation, you know, Rylane 2, like but like a diehard two situation where they go to the they go to the airport and there's a you know a, there's a you know sort of terrorist attack in the airport and they have to ride to the rescue. That I would I would be up for that. 
I mean, it, to, to to switch the genre, I would. I think that's know? quite clever. I like that. Oh my god! Like 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 sequels that are like just different genres every time. Yes. So the next one's like a horror or a thriller. That's an awesome idea. There you go. There you go. I I am available for consultation work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> No, we're just going to run off with your idea. Now. Damn it! <laughs> I always give away the good shit for free. This is ridiculous. Uh, anyway, but anyway, I wanted to talk about <laughs> about mm-hmm. about those characters and how you guys found these characters because they're 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 both complex, uh, charismatic, adorable human beings. You just want to spend <laughs> as much time with as possible, which is good because you're in pretty much every single scene. And, uh, I I was just wondering how you you got into that. Was there a lot of I mentioned improv in American comedies? I get the sense this was meticulously scripted, but I'm also getting the sense that you and David were able to inject a lot of yourselves into it. Yeah, you're correct. Um, the script was incredible. Like when we got it, it was just so funny already. Um, Rain allowed us so much freedom to less like, you know, and the writers, like there was no egos on this job. So it was really just like, if this works, then it works. If not, like offer up whatever you want to offer up and we'll... Um, and let's see um so it was kind of both like straddling both like going with the script and improvising i think in terms of the like creating the characters um yeah i think for me it was really important to understand yaz's motivations quickly because like um she isn't this hardcore sort of like manic pixie dream girl she's not just there to like you know like bring sorry my god she isn't just there to um you know help with um dom's self-actualization like she has her own arc to go on so i needed to understand the motivations behind like having such like a boundless curiosity for the external world but like nothing that she wants to turn inwards and like understand herself and like her own like pain that she's going through at the time so yeah it was a process of empathizing so on the page she's kind of like a bit like a whirlwind and like but she's so sweet like i really endeared towards her i feel quite different from her but she's so in the air and whimsical but um yeah that was finding the characters and then somehow the world that I'd created for Yaz and the world that um, David had created for Dom just slotted together very very last question very very quick one from from me uh you know this is despite you being a Trojan horse this is a celebration of of South London do you have a South London recommendation? Uh, maybe something that isn't featured in the movie. If someone were to rock up to London and they were, were to head Peckham Way, where, where would you recommend they go? I think you can eat at Flygerian's really lovely, delicious Nigerian restaurant. Um, failing that, you should go to Peckham Plex, that's in the film. Also in Campbell, there's this Ethiopian restaurant called Zara Kitchen, and it's the top-rated African restaurant in London. It's so delicious. So. I've not been there. I need to try it's that. So we should go. It's so nice. Um, yeah, those those are mine. Mine would be first choice. Um, first choice patties, baker. What? Sorry, it's called first choice bakers. Um, in Brixton, they do really good patties. They're on Atlantic Road. I really wanted to feature that place because they've got massive, like right next to it, there's like massive Ray and Nephew logo. And I was like, but then I also thought, but then people are going to think this is actual like product placement. And Brand, yeah. Direct yeah. to going, I bloody love Ray and Nephew. Ray and Nephews. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's right. I'm writing all that down, all these, all these recommendations down. You know, uh-huh. my wife and I have been a couple of times to the Prince of Peckham, which is amazing. I don't know if you guys have been there. We love Great it. We had our after party yeah. there for the premiere. Didn't mm. you? Yeah, yeah. Amazing, great. amazing. All right. Well, listen, I'm disappointed that Love Gradually, not to, I'm not going to give away. There's a big gag within that that which, which is amazing, but there's a there's a a food joint in your film called Love Gradually, which I'm very disappointed to find doesn't exist. Yeah, exist. sorry, we created that. Yeah. Well, there's a gap in the market now, so I'm off to do that. Yeah, you steal my idea. I'll steal yours. We'll yeah, be back yeah, in a year to see who's deal. richer. Deal. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to Ride Lane 2, in which uh, uh, David plays an alien and Vivian, you play a Ripley type, and you just spend the day just walking around a spaceship falling in love. Yeah. <laughs> I, think would, I think Viv would want to be the alien. Like alien. I could already, she'd be, she'd be in for the alien. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And perhaps Love Gradually can, uh, we can, we can do the rap party. We'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> All tying it together. It's a nice thread. Lovely, lovely bow. Fantastic. Rain, Vivian, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much indeed. Thanks for having us. Waving at your boat. Waving at your boat right now. (laughs) Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so that was Rain Alan Miller and Vivian O'Para, and we'll be talking about Rye Lane, gushing about Rye Lane later on in the show. But first up, it is time for the movie news section. And I mean, we don't often record on a Friday because editing this in a very, very short space of time is not for the faint-hearted. Um, I am really going to be up against it already to turn this around today in time for five o'clock. Don't think I'm going to do it. I'll be honest. Spoiler alert. It's not going to happen. But <laughs> but because we're recording on a Friday, it means there's a lot of news today. Usually there's not a lot of news. Uh, but Hollywood has, go- has covered us liberally oh, in, in glorious news this week. Uh, should we start with the Oscars and then go on to some other stuff? Um, and we've got to cover the Oscars fairly quickly. Uh, sadly, mm-hmm. but um, overall, everything, everywhere, all at once, did really, really well. How many Oscars did it pick up in the night? Seven, seven, I think, seven yeah. Oscars, all seven Oscars, everywhere, all at everywhere, once, all the Oscars. Uh, it was the big winner. It uh, pissed off a lot of terrible people. So I was <laughs> even more delighted with its win than I normally would have been. Uh, it won Best Picture, obviously Best Directors for the Daniels. Uh, it won Best Original Screenplay. It won a three of the four acting Oscars, which I believe is a record, yeah. Helen? You're pretty, pretty sure good at this not. sort of stuff. So I remember reading somewhere that someone said that it, it was unusual. It's unusual, anyway. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, I know what it was. I know what it was. It's one, it's one five of the big six. Yeah. That was, uh, apparently that's unusual. Oh yeah, very unusual. Kihi Kwan obviously won for Best Supporting Actor. Michelle Yeoh won for Best Actress. And in what some people dubbed to be a surprise on the night, Jamie Lee Curtis certainly was a surprise for Jamie Lee Curtis, whose reaction was uh, brilliant. She literally goes, oh, shut up. Uh, she won Best Supporting Actress, uh, which, you know, great for her, obviously, but has annoyed a lot of people who thought that uh, it was going to be Angela Bassett's or even Carrie Condon's. Your man's in church, boss. Uh, but we, you know, but it didn't, it didn't come to pass. Uh, who else won? Um, other people won stuff for stuff. Who won Best um, Actor? Who won Best Actor? That would be Brendan Fraser. Brendan yeah. Fraser. Yeah, Brendan Fraser for the, for the whale. So, there we go. We love him. We don't necessarily, in my case, love the film, but. Yeah, it's very hard Not to argue people with do. Fraser. I liked hmm? it a lot. Thanks very much. I know. I, yeah, you're the one. 
so how what did you think of the of the Oscars overall? Um, obviously, we're very disappointed that our our pal and uh, fourth chair um, buttocks person mm. uh, Eddie Hamilton didn't win for best editor, but. Uh, but, that would have been you know, nice. There'll be another time. Look, I, you know, I am I am I thrilled that Banshees was completely shut out. No, I am not. Um, it's but disrespectful to St. Patrick. It's a, it's a little disrespectful, but it's also I'm I'm I find it hard to argue with any of the awards that Everything Everywhere got, just because I'm so delighted that Oscar went for something so barmy and so out there. So I I can't begrudge it really. Anything. I mean, yes, the Angel- Angela Bassett should have an Oscar now. Should she definitely have won it for this film, or was the miscarriage of justice that you're really worried about something that happened, you know, multiple times uh, throughout her career? Uh, so I feel like it's. I think it's the comic book movie that actually swayed them against her this time. I think they didn't want to give an acting award to a Marvel movie. That's honestly what I think mm. happened there. Um, but uh, she'll get she'll get an Oscar. I think at this point, everybody knows it's embarrassing that she doesn't have one. And I, I hope that they'll sort that out on the next available opportunity. So yeah, so that was a disappointment. But I can't begrudge Jamie Lee Curtis either because she's just been such a delight this award season as a fellow early to bed person i just love her for saying that she can't stay up late for things you know yeah passing out happy through a speech i thought was a bit of interesting <laughs> i'm on board with it man i'm on board with it uh so yeah i just I, you know there are things i can quibble with but there's very little that outraged me and that's an unusual position for any of us to be in after the oscars you know usually we're up in arms about something i think mm. eddie hamilton and and angela bassett are as close as i can get to that it was very much a you wake up you look at the results because we didn't watch it live and be like huh sure like it was just sure yeah was pleased to see women talking taking obviously the the adapted screenplay that 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 i think we hoped for but didn't think would happen so that's nice yeah that was good news mm-hmm. yeah definitely the biggest thing that people were up in arms about and i think quite rightly although you can you can also understand why were the various omissions from in memoriam, the in memoriam yeah. segment, which were yeah, a lot of really, really great people mm-hmm. um, were omitted from the in memoriam segment. Now, some people have explained that it's because there are 17 branches of the Academy and each branch has to be represented. So at a certain point, someone's got to go, uh, I guess. But there was like this QR code to scan which to see the rest of the dead people. That's on. No. You scan a QR code to see who died. Presumably, that's where Paul Sorvino was, among others. That's where Paul Sorvino was, where David Warner was, where um, the great Mike Hodges was. You know, obviously there were people who died. That wig top hole, Tom Sizemore, who who couldn't fit the, who couldn't get into the uh, uh, the telecast. Uh, Anne Hesh, Charlie uh, Dean Crick, who was the star of Triangle yes. of Sadness, which is a Best Picture nominee wasn't in the telecast. Obviously, she passed away suddenly and shockingly, very very young. Uh, last year, and it's 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 wild mm. in a way, and uh, you know it's it it just feels frankly disrespectful. Yeah, I, th- I think look, you don't need a minute for each person, you but you do need to include as many people as possible, you know. And I think that's where the the montage has kind of gone wrong in recent years. They've been showing so many le- quite lengthy, relatively lengthy clips of the big name, you know, bold name people who died that then. You know they've left so many people out, and and somebody like Paul Servino. This is not you know an mm. obscure name that nobody knows. This is somebody who 
absolutely should be in that montage. You know, it's just it's a it's a very weird thing. So yeah, that wasn't great. Not least because there's a there's an amazing moment in Goodfellas where you know there's lots of moments in Goodfellas where you could have used a clip for both him and yes. Ray Liotta. Yeah. yeah, for example, you yeah. know, uh, I got to turn my back on you. That that's that's a the moment that that's, that springs to mind. But also, Paul Serafino is at the heart of one of the great Oscar moments in recent history when his daughter Mira Serafino won the Oscar and he's absolutely blubbing yeah. away in the in the in the stalls. Use that, I mean, at least, you know. I'm looking at more of Fred Ward, Leslie Jordan, oh. Gilbert Gottfried, who I think would have been tickled by his omission, to be honest. <laughs> I'm not in the Oscar in memoriam. That's amazing. Uh, you know, Topol, as we mentioned, Albert Payan, the the great kind of low-budget mm-hmm. director of, of loads of sci-fi schlock. He didn't make it. Uh, Philip Baker Hall, the great character oh, come actor. come on. I mean... We could we could be here all day just listing names and being outraged, but you know it's it, it does feel disrespectful to me, and hopefully they'll get it right next year. It's a, it's a difficult thing to to do. I uh, yeah, I, I'm sure that's true, but but still, yeah, definitely get it right. I mean, I, I thought that uh, I enjoyed Jimmy Kimmel's opening monologue, and not just because he made fun of Babylon, but also that. <laughs> all, all in all, a pretty good Oscars. Bizarre. Don't know how to feel. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Dory Helen, I've got something that'll make you mad. Oh, thank God. What is it? It's uh, the news that Quentin Tarantino may be making his final movie, uh, your yeah. favourite director I in like the him. world, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Quentin, he's teamed up with Chris Nolan to, to form oh. some sort of mecha <laughs> Nolan Tarantino. No, um, he's going to make... So this isn't confirmed yet, no. there, but there it's are rumours knocking around that he is in active pre-production on what will be ostensibly his final film, his 10th film, depending on how you're counting mm-hmm. and what you're counting. Depending on how uh, he, he counts said, it, yeah. And how he counts it. He said for a long, long time that his 10th film would be his last film. Now, obviously, it depends on how you, you take the Kill Bills. Mm-hmm. Because if you take the Kill Bills as one film, then yes, this is his 10th film. If you take the Kill Bills as two films, then no. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was Quentin Tarantino's final film. But... <laughs> We're going to skip past that. Yeah. And, and uh, this film is, seems, again, nothing's announced. And there's some speculation that this might not be a film. It might be a limited edition series that he's been talking about doing something along these lines at some point. But this film would have seemed to be called The Movie Critic. Now, incredibly, it's not about us, mainly because I refuse to actually review movies. Uh, but it is apparently set in the studio system towards the end of the 1970s. And a lot of people then have put two and two together and come up with Pauline Kael. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not this is about Pauline Kael or it's a Pauline Kael inspired figure remains to be seen. But, uh, and of course, it all remains to be seen because none of it's been confirmed yet. But that would seem to be the case yeah. that a script has been written. He's going out to cast, apparently, uh, with a view to starting filming maybe even later this year. So, what do we think about that? I, I look, my little tweet about this earlier in the week was just that the discourse, the film Twitter discourse on this is going to hmm. be a freaking nightmare. This is not to say the film will be bad, just that there will be endless takes on this that will be exhausting. Uh, and that was all my concern about this being announced. Yeah. Um, I, I think it probably is more likely to be a Pauline Kael-esque figure if I'm honest, you know, as something so. in the yep. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood vein, there's a sort of, there is a type that that references and there's real people around them, but your central figure is is fictional and that gives you a little bit more leeway and a little bit more room to work with. Could be great. I, I do I do feel like sometimes when fil- people make movies about critics, there's a tendency to feel that they're punching up. And I feel like if they looked at any of our houses, they'd realise they were punching down, <laughs> you know? So... um 
there, it, I hope there's a little bit of generosity of spirit. But but there is an interesting nub there. You know, Pauline Kael did go and work in Hollywood for a bit, and basically didn't produce anything, didn't manage anything, didn't didn't make an impact particularly. And so there's an in, potentially an interesting kind of idea there. I think. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, so the casting and everything remains to be seen. That the approach remains to be seen. But look, on paper, I'm, I loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I thought the book mm-hmm. was bad, but I loved the film, and um, I'm intrigued to see what he does with this. Mm. Yeah, I'm intrigued as well because if this is, you know, entirely set within the studio system and is inspired by Pauline Kael's story, it's unlikely to have any of the old ultra violence in it, um, which would make it the first. Quentin Tarantino film in which someone doesn't die horribly. I'm, I'm listen. I'm sure he can write that in. He'll he find would. a way in. Maybe it'll be metaphorical. Every time she savages a film, you'll see like a violent, bloody sequence of her like wailing on it with a sword or something. Precisely. I mean, this yeah. is a man who famously um, killed Hitler. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> so, so did Dean yeah, Winchester, man. Whatever. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so yeah, let's hope it's slightly kinder towards critics than I don't know, Lady in the Water. I don't know. I think critics deserve everything they get, quite frankly. But anyway. we can take it if we're going to dish it out. We have to be able to take it. But I, I do oh, feel like there's sometimes a little bit of a, um, just a false impression of what targets. criticism is. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I think I think that all filmmakers should be able to uh, critique our review. In fact, we did this once. We actually did this with Roland Emmerich. We got Roland Emmerich to review our feature, our Empire feature of Independence Day, and he went through and read the feature and marked it up. <laughs> He went through and he critiques the feature on Independence Day. It was quite funny. Don't do that with our Moonfall review rules. <laughs> Back away from the Moonfall review. I still, I'm not sure about this final film business. I can, I get it. I get it. You know, it's very, very rare that directors retain their potency in later into their career. But uh, I also, I don't know, I just wish when all is said and done, we're looking back on Quentin Tarantino's career, if we're only looking at 10 or 11 films, I would be a little bit disappointed by that. But Has he hey, said uh, why? Has he said why he's only doing 10 films? What I just said, mm. he thinks directors lose their potency after when they get older. Specifically after they, 10. But why after 10? Like, is that, it's a nice, nice, nice number, isn't it? He's sometimes said uh, the age of 60 instead, but he also turned 60 next year, I believe. So uh, whichever, year. This way, so whichever way you mm-hmm. look at it, that he's, he's sort of approaching the end of his self-imposed limit. Which is making me feel incredibly fucking old because Quentin Tarantino <laughs> was always like the, the funderkind of cinema. Like he's a man who crashed into independent <laughs> cinema with such energy. Like you know, it's, it's one of the yeah, it's one of the the, the, the great seismic moments of my movie loving life is when I saw Reservoir Dogs and fell in love mm. with it and oh my god, the burst of energy that it gave me. And now to think that he's really old and he's retiring and like but hang on, but I'm still the same age. How could that possibly be the case? Anyway, Time travel. It's fine. Uh, Time travel. That's it. I have cracked time travel. That is it. So that is one of the that's one of the big pieces of movie news that's yeah. out there. The other well, the loads of big of pieces of movie news. Uh, do you want to throw some at me? Well, I was going to say Ben Affleck is not going to be directing any DC movies. He has officially said in under the James Gunn uh, oeuvre. However, James Gunn is going to be directing one. He is going to be directing Superman Legacy, which he, obviously we know he was writing, but he wasn't going to direct it, and now he is. So ye- n- not young soups, but younger soups. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. 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 It's sort of, uh, I think it's post Smallville, pre most of Superman history. Yeah. Is the idea, which could be good. I mean, look, I'm I'm here for a Superman movie. If he gets the tone right, I'm super, super on board. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't know that everything needs to be a prequel, but technically, I guess this isn't. So, you know. 
No, up, yeah, it seems like it's, a, it's his own thing. Yeah, I love that he uh, he fetted everyone who was available to direct this movie, and in the end, <laughs> he, decided he decided he was he the was best man for the job. The job. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think he fell in love with his own script, maybe, and just got to a point where he's like, you know what, I can, I can, you know, devote two years of my life to this. I I I love it enough yeah. that I will. And so, fair so, play. Chekhov's James Gunn. If you see him writing the script in the first act, you'll be directing it by the third. <laughs> I uh, very good. I uh, yeah. I have I have a sneaky suspicion he was always intended to direct this. He was just keeping his cards close to his chest, and uh, uh, it's interesting because you know his his tone on pretty much everything he's directed mm-hmm. and everything he's written has been very ultra glib and very ironic and very tongue in cheek. And there's a lot of reversals and undercutting and a bit of archness, and not always in connection, not always in in touch with the the touchy feely stuff. Not always. Sometimes he is. Uh, I would I would say Guardians Two achieves that. Helen would probably I would disagree, not, but, but okay. that's a that's an argument we'll have <laughs> ad in fucking finitum for forever and ever. Um, but the fact that you know he he posted a very passionate and emotional statement about this and why he wants to do it, and he basically lost his dad a few years ago, so this is going to be very heavily inspired by by those emotions and it's been released on July 25th into 2024 which as his brother pointed out is their dad's birthday complete coincidence wow but he thinks that that's some sort of sign mm. as well so i'm i'm confident you know he's talked an awful lot about how he's grown and changed as a person as a filmmaker over the last few years uh, some of that can be seen in peacemaker season 1 genuinely um and i think a lot of it will be seen in guardians volume 3 so i'm excited about this yeah, that's i'm a, very excited that's about a this. pretty tight production schedule isn't it so um it may mm. also mean that this really is more of a character piece and isn't just, you know, wham, bam, buildings falling over, uh, which is good, which is what I want, you know, so. Maybe it's 2025. Maybe I got the, maybe you got the year oh, wrong. Uh, I think I might have got the year wrong. I'll, I'll double check that. But uh, he did accompany it on his Instagram post with a uh, with a uh, an image from uh, the Superman for All Seasons, Ooh. which is, is amazing. Jeff Loeb, Tim Sale, the late Tim Sale. Mm. Uh, great, great graphic novel. And... If that is a hint at where they're going tonally, then yes, please. Mm, chef's kiss. Kiss a chef. Yes, 2025. My mistake. 11th of July, 2025. Yeah, makes so I got all the dates wrong. <laughs> okay. Two years. Two years to to make this movie happen. Very exciting. Uh, by which point, of course, Ridley Scott will have cast, shot, edited, and released <laughs> Gladiator 2 and probably another 15 films because he is the most prolific man uh, in the business. I think he is motivated purely at the moment by a desire to prove Quentin Tarantino wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, directors lose their potency once they turn 60 or make their or make 10 films, do they? I'll show you, you fucker. That's what he's basically saying with this because he is going ahead with Gladiator 2, um, South Dublin Boogaloo, and <laughs> Barry Keoghan is apparently in talks to play the baddie. He's got big Commodus energy. I can see that. <laughs> I'm intrigued by this. He's going to be playing a, a fictionalised version of Emperor Geta, who co-ruled... David Geta? Uh, no, s- s- spelled differently, but but similar great okay. beats. Um, he co-ruled with his brother, um, and he died at the age of 22, so Barry's already too old, I'm sorry. But he... Yeah, it was a really interesting thing, because basically they, they tried to keep the two brothers away from each other, but have them rule jointly. And of course, everybody formed factions around the two of them. And it, it didn't turn out super well, let me just say, for their whole sibling relationship. No spoilers. There were deaths. I'm just saying there were deaths. Anywho. I'm sure there were. 
I'm intrigued by this Dear Santa news, obviously, talking yes. about Christmas movies. So Jack Black is going to be working with the Farrelly brothers on Dear Santa, which is a rename from the originally titled Dear Satan. And the idea is that a little boy misaddresses his list huh. to Satan instead of Santa. So I'm kind of hoping for essentially the tribute video by Tenacious D as a yes. movie length Christmas movie. Well, you know, the, the, the Satan segments from Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny mm. are iconic. Dave Grohl as Satan. Naturally. Um, it'd be amazing. <laughs> I'm not going to quote the lyrics from, from the climactic song, but yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they're on point. <laughs> uh, and this is going to be Bobby Farrelly directing and Peter Farrelly producing. So it looks mm. like the Farrelly brothers are no longer a thing now that you know Peter Farrelly is off doing his, his stuff mm. and Bobby Farrelly returned uh, last week with Champions. But it's good to see they're still working yeah. together and this is their screenplay. So so, you know, I know the Farley brothers are a very easy target and they get a lot of shit, but, uh, you know, at their very, very best, those movies can be hilarious. I mean, my God, Dumb and Dumber, there's something about Mary, me, myself and Irene, Kingpin. When they're firing all cylinders, there are very few directors that can, you know, hit the funny bone as well as they. So, yeah, yeah excited about yeah. that. I'm also excited very, very quickly because we've got to plug the new issue as well. Uh, very, very quickly uh, and very early days indeed for Guillermo del Toro, who has been threatening to make a Frankenstein movie and has in many ways made a Frankenstein movie <laughs> in many of his movies uh, over the last few years. Uh, but he's actually going to make mm. a Frankenstein movie. Guillermo del Toro's Frankenstein. Um, that's the possessory credit, not a bit of casting news. And <laughs> it's going to be Netflix. Netflix is going to bankroll this. And, With all the money they uh, saved from... Nancy Myers. <laughs> Nancy Myers, yeah. yes. Who apparently that, that film is going to rock up at uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, yeah. who've taken the Batgirl money and put it Bizarre, into a kitchen it? for. Yeah. Um, it's going to be an amazing <laughs> kitchen, kitchen now. Can't wait. Nancy Myers, yeah. Disappointed Brenton Fraser didn't play the Batgirl assembly cut on his phone uh, as his acceptance speech. That would have been a big flex. Anyway, uh, in talks to star in Guillermo del Toro's Frankenstein are Oscar Isaac, am I pronouncing that correctly? Andrew Garfield? Garf Garfield? And Mia Goth? Goth? I think. Oh, yes. Oscar Isaac, Andrew Garfield, and Mia Goth. So it's going to be a very, very unattractive cast. That is a huh. sweet lineup by anybody's standards. We're going to be talking about Mia Goth later, but what a freaking talent she is. Um, and the boys aren't bad either. I mean, they're quite good, I think <laughs> it's fair to say. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm super hyped for that. I'm not sure. Do do we know? We don't know who anybody's playing. I mean, she's obviously rumored to be a love interest rather than of of yes. the doctor rather than the creature. Although I'm sure it won't be as simple as that. I don't think so either. So I'm I'm intrigued to see how they go with this. But um, but yeah, Frankenstein done well is is amazing. So hey 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 yeah. Could be. It could well be. Uh, all right. Well, listen, I think we have just one last thing to do in the new section, and that is plug the hell out of the new issue of Empire because it is new issue Empire Day plus one Ooh. because we're recording this on a Friday. The new issue of Empire has dropped. On the cover is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, where we talk to the stars and directors and producers. Lord and Miller are still the producers. Um and Phil Lord is still the co-writer of this, I believe. And new directors, all new directors on this, including Kemp Powers, uh, who, of course, directed, co-directed Soul. Uh, and very, very exciting indeed. You know, the first movie was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Uh, won an Oscar. Maybe changed the face of animation forever. No pressure following that up. 
So we've got that in there uh, as well. What else do we have inside the issue? I think there's a Last of Us thing, isn't there, James? There may or may not be eight pages of me banging on about The Last of Us. I would say if you do not already subscribe to Pilot Plus, then very much do so because you can hear my interviews with Pedro Pascal, Bella Ramsey, Craig Mason and Neil Druckmann in full going through absolutely every single part of this show. Uh, But if you don't want to listen to it, then you can read it over eight pages uh, in the magazine where we go through all the big plot points. It's spoilerific. If you haven't seen it, stay away. That's great. There's more stuff in there, though. There's more stuff inside the issue. There's a little film called Evil Dead Rise. Run away! Directed by <laughs> Lee Cronin. <laughs> to the cinema, it's really good, but it's scary. And produced by the original Evil Deadites, Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell and Rob Tappert. And I, yes, because it's me, because once again they've let me interview Sam Raimi. He's tried to throw up roadblocks and, and restraining orders and it has not worked. And so I interviewed Lee Cronin and Sam Raimi on Zoom a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it's in the issue, and it was a ton of fun, and they were a ton of fun. And uh, so that's in there, Evil Dead Rise, Last of Us Season 1 Deep Dive, as we've said. where you know uh, We have a big look at All Quiet on the Western Front with uh, the director and the star and the writers of that movie, which obviously gobbled up BAFTAs everywhere, but uh, didn't do so well at the Oscars, but, but still, you know, it was there. And uh, has become a sort of Netflix sensation after its release. It was very much uh, one of their knockdown ginger releases at the time, but uh, has has displayed remarkable legs. We have the inside story of that. We have a look at the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, which is a cult movie, uh, which was written, believe it or not, by Dr. Seuss himself, uh, a.k.a. Theo Geisler. Isn't mm-hmm. that right, Helen? Yeah. Theo Geisler. Yeah, reading a lot of Dr. Seuss at the moment, and he knocks pretty much every other child's author into a cocked hat. Uh, just the invention and the wordplay, it's, it's incredible. Then you read some crap by those lad baby pricks, and it's just awful. Uh, anyway, <laughs> they do a lot of good work for charity, so well done them. Uh, the Deep Dive. <laughs> the Deep Dive is a new feature in which we do a deep dive into an aspect of movie culture or movie lore. And this month, we kick off by looking at Musso and Frank's which isn't a buddy cop movie from the 80s, but it is actually one of the great kind of delis in Hollywood, where if you go there, you will throw a lobster thermidor and hit a, an A-lister. Pretty much guaranteed. Uh, in the Take 20 section, some... Yeah, not guaranteed. In the Take 20 section, some stuff happens. Uh, in my section review, uh, there is a look at Matilda... Uh, We have Confess Fletch in the viewing guide. We talk to Christopher Landon uh, and we do a ranking of David Lynch, which is exciting. Plus, all the all the reviews that you could possibly wish to read are in there as well. It is an absolute bargain. Go and pick it up right now. It's on sale and all good. Evil and virtual news agents have at it immediately. You motherfuckers. No, No, damn it. No, No. No. I was doing so well. I was doing so well. I was doing so well. Anyway, let's move on to our second guest this week. Who do you want, Liam Neeson or Liam Neeson? Oh, let's have Liam Neeson. I'm afraid you can't have Liam Neeson. Uh, You're going to have instead Liam Neeson on St. Patrick's Day, no less. Here is Liam Neeson, Northern Ireland's most legendary living actor, possibly. Kenneth Branagh might like to see those two have a big old fight. I mean, I think I know where I'd put my money. (laughs) (laughs) I would always put my money on the star of Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit. You're absolutely right, (laughs) Helen. Anyway, uh, Liam Neeson is back this week. He is in the Sky original movie, 
Marlowe, which is, sees him reunite with Neil Jordan after some years apart. Obviously, they made the likes of uh, High Spirits and Michael Collins uh, together, uh, but they haven't worked together for a while. But they're back, back, back in Marlowe, which is an adaptation. It's a Philip Marlowe tale, but it is not an adaptation of a Raymond Chandler novel. It is an adaptation of a more recent novel uh, co-written by Neil Jordan and William Monaghan, big heavy-duty screenwriters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he stars alongside Diane Kruger and Jessica Lange, and it's a tale about a slightly older Marlowe uh, who is on the cusp of World War II enmeshed in a labyrinthine plot, you'd be surprised <gasps> to know, that involves the, the movie industry and all sorts of stuff goes on. Uh, so I went along yesterday to a London hotel and I sat down with Big Liam and I had a, we had a big old chat about a whole ton of things, um, not, not confined to, and in fact, barely including Marlowe. So here we go. <laughs> Please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined in the Emperor Podcast by Liam Neeson, the star of Marlowe. How are you, sir? Not too bad. Good, good, good. Uh, always enjoy talking to you, Liam, because uh, my accent gets gradually thicker as, <laughs> as time goes on. What about yours? I mean, you know, did you find that you, when you started off, you had accent issues in England and uh, abroad? C- certainly in, in uh, Los Angeles, when I first went out, there would be like, okay, for a start, they had trouble with my name. Uh-huh. And... Trying to pronounce Lyle, and eventually I had to say, That's fine, Lyle's fine. Lyle Nelson, yeah, that's fine. So, some of my close friends, I sign myself off as Lyle Nelson, you know. (laughs) That's true, Lyle Nelson. My god, that's a thing. Well, but this, this Liam Marlowe is incredibly your 100th film. Have you been keeping count? No, I haven't. Somebody told me about this, and uh, yeah. They said something like 135, and I said, that's not, not true. And uh, I think I went through IMDb, which is International Movie Database. And it, yeah, it was 100. And that, that included some documentaries that I narrated, you know? Yeah, of course. Documentary of course. films. Yeah. Christopher Lee did 250. He did. Wow. Yeah. That does not surprise me. <laughs> that's not bad. Yeah. Donald that's Sutherland's up there too, I think. He's up there, yeah. Eric Roberts, these are, you know, people who are in the, yeah. the, the Triple Figures Club. So, yeah, yeah. welcome to the Triple Figures Club. Now, now, Excalibur is, I think, widely considered to be your first movie. There were TV movies and TV stuff you did on TV before then, but do you consider Excalibur to be your, your debut on the, on the big screen? Um, you know something? I did... Uh uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan for the for the evangelical outreach. I think that was an offshoot of Billy Graham. Okay. Uh, and we shot it in Belfast. And then we did a sequel called Christiana. Right. So that, that was my first film. And apparently they're still playing in mission halls around Africa. Uh, I imagine back in the day, did you did you know the, the the ins and outs of screen acting back back then? I mean, how did you pick it up? I think I mean I started off in the Lyric Theatre in Belfast, nineteen seventy six, and uh, I was there for a couple of years, I think, and then moved down to Dublin again. It was all theatre work, you know. Mm. And whatever ambition I had, I guess it would have been to maybe be invited to join the National Theatre of Great Britain, you know. It certainly wasn't films, as much as I enjoyed movies, but... Uh, and then uh, John Borman cast me in Excalibur, along with Gabriel Byrne and Kieran Hines, and, uh, and it just opened the door, you know. And John was terrific. He, he became a mentor 
for Gabriel, myself, and Kieran. Mm. Uh, he would take us behind the camera, show us shots and why he was shooting it this way. I mean, he was phenomenal. Wow. He really was. I, I owe John so much. And uh, just teaching us about the craft of filmmaking. Yeah. And I John was passionate about this Excalibur. He really, really was passionate. And it transferred to me and Kieran and certainly Gabriel. So that was, that was it? That's the, that's yeah. the bug? Yeah. The bug really got under my skin. It did. I loved it. And it was a different medium, of course it was. It's, it's a different... Uh, totally different to the theatre. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and... Uh, but it's e- exciting. And yeah, because in theatre you're projecting to the, the person who's in row said and you're in projecting. cinema. Yeah. You move your eyes and... Yeah, but it's not as simple as that. Mm. You know, you're still... I mean, I always remember the late, great Cyril Cusack seeing Mr. Cusack on stage. And Cyril always spoke like that, you know, just above a whisper. Interesting. And when you saw him on stage, he's, he seemed to be still speaking that way. That, yes, he was obviously projecting, but but you didn't notice the projection. Do you know what I mean? Mm. That was after 50 years of theatre experience, you know. Wow. He was quite remarkable. He'd got it. Yeah. When was the last time you were on stage? Uh, I did uh, something at the Lincoln Centre uh, with Ray Fiennes, Barry McGovern, three separate things. Uh-huh. Uh, my little piece was a, a piece that uh, Beckett wrote for television called A. Joe. Right. Uh, that was adapted by Adam McGoyan, the Canadian director. Oh, yes, yes, yes. For the stage. Yeah. Uh, and it was great. It lasted 27, 28 minutes. I didn't have to learn a word. <laughs> uh, and that was the last, yeah, that was 15 years ago, I think. 15 years ago. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. But, uh, but, but in terms of movies, like, obviously this reunites you with with Neil Jordan. You've worked with Neil before, obviously. Sure, this is our fourth, fourth <laughs> yeah. time, yeah. And what's that relationship like? Has it changed over the years? I mean... Not really, no. Um, uh, Neil's, you know, he wouldn't use ten words when four would do. <laughs> and I like that, you know. We never kind of intellectualized a scene or heavily discussed it, you know. We just, I guess, no knew what each other know what each, each other is capable of, you know. And I say, I trust Neil 100%. He, he is a visionary, you know. And uh, I think, I hope he sort of trusts me, you know. Are you an actor who likes to be directed, if you, if you know what I mean? Do sure. You, do you like to have conversations with directors or would you get to set, do you have a, a very clear idea of what you're doing? Not a clear idea. I, I like to keep a, a little door open, you know, to what the other actor, actress might be doing. And, uh hopefully get uh, inspired by them, you know, as well as the director, you know. I like to put an input into the physicality of a scene, you know. You know, where I should move, should I move? You know, do I pour myself a cup of tea? Do I not? Do I light a cigarette? When to light it? You know, I like working all that out, you know. Is that something you do when you get on set and you can see the parameters of what you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it behoves you not to come in with it. This is how I'm going to do it. You know, you want to take it all in and hopefully be inspired by your surroundings and the other cast members, you know. 
And something like Marlowe as well, where you're reuniting with Neil, but you're also playing, it's not a sequel, obviously, but you're playing a character who's been played by so many greats sure, yeah. of, of cinema yeah. over the years. And you're putting your own stamp on this character. Is that something that, you know, how much did you, did you think about how you were going to approach playing this part? Um, well, I kind of, I kind of grew up with that film noir. It was always seemed to be on our little black and white TV, <laughs> the corner of the room. Yeah. Uh, on a Sunday afternoon, it always seemed to be a film noir with Alan Ladd or John Garfield, William Bendix, or Veronica Legg. <laughs> yeah. You know, always, and, and it seemed to be every Sunday. Uh, so I, I kind of feel like I sort of grew up with that, you know. It seeped into the bones. It seeped into the bones, and I'd never. Uh, I'd, I'm an avid reader, but I'd never read Raymond Chandler until this movie. All right, okay. So you what, immerse yourself. Yeah, in it. totally. Oh, what yeah. a writer! My gosh, and I, I had them all on my Kindle, you know. And I would finish one and think, "What the hell was that about? Who was the bad guy?" <laughs> Doesn't matter. On to the next one, yeah. Doesn't matter because it's about plot. It's about. It's not about plot because the plot can be yeah. labyrinthine, but yeah. it's yeah. about the feelings, about the character. Absolutely. Yeah. And Chandler, he wrote with such poetic kind of prose, you know. I, I loved his writing. Mm. I was writing. I still dip into them, you know. And I still dip into seeing uh, film noir, you know, some obscure black and white movie. That's, you know. Uh, <laughs> They're, they're great. That's a happy place. Yeah. Did you go back and immerse yourself in, in Marlowe's past? I mean, uh, there's a Elliot Gould did a great oh, Marlowe for, yeah. for Bob Altman. And the performance in that was Sterling Hayden. Oh, yes. Oh, he yeah. was magnificent. Yeah. Absolutely. He was magnificent. Mm-hmm. Elliot was too. Of course he was. But it was uh, Sterling Hayden was, I remember watching that years ago and thinking, who the hell's that guy? It was like he didn't give a damn. But yeah, he knew exactly what the camera was capable of. And he sort of threw his performance away, but made him all the more magnetic, you know, if that makes any sense. Well, he was one of those guys, I think, a bit like someone like a, like a Lee Marvin or and someone like that. Who Errol had, Flynn, too. Who had lived lives. Lived lives and they yeah. sailed the world you know, yeah. single-handed and yachts and fished in the deep waters of, <laughs> of Australia and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sort of guys that don't exist anymore, you know? Yeah. And Hayden was certainly that. He he brought out a book called The Wanderer that I managed to get a copy of a couple of years ago. Right. Terrific. He's a hell of a writer, wasn't he? Good writer. Yeah. And just the life he led, you know? Yeah. And he famously then did uh, uh, The Godfather. He, Al, Al Pacino shoots him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right in the throat. Yeah. Yeah. He's sitting there in the bar. Pacino goes for a pee, and there's a gun hidden underneath the system, and he comes out. And apparently the story goes that the studio, because uh, Coppola insisted that Al play the, the role, you know, of Michael Corleone. And the story goes, the studio executives are watching all these dailies of Al Pacino being, you know, dead. He wasn't <laughs> yeah. been dead. It was all happening in the eyes. Yeah, yeah. And they wanted to replace him. Yeah. Because he wasn't dynamic enough. And then they saw the, the dailies of that scene where he shoots Sterling Hayden. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I got it now. You know? We're in. We're yeah. in. Yeah. yeah. We see what he's doing. 
You obviously liked working with Neil enough again this time around that you guys are working together again. Uh, on We're hoping to do something later on this year about a fictitious prison escape from Rikers Island, which is an infamous jail mm-hmm. on the East River of Manhattan. Very, very controversial prison. And I think they're going to tear it down within the next four or five years. Oh, wow. Okay, so the clock is ticking in a way. Yeah. Yeah, but but not. We're not going to shoot there. You're not going to shoot there. Okay, yeah, would yeah. have to be somewhere else. You know? All right. But um, yeah, it's an infamous prison, you know, and it's a good script. Neil has written a really really good script, you know. And we haven't seen a good prison escape movie for a long time. I think. No, no, absolutely. Shawshank Redemption, which is yeah. fantastic, but I can't think of any since then, really. You know. So you guys plugged back in uh, again on this one very much. So picked up where you left off. Uh, Kind of, yeah. Yeah. I know it's, we're Irish, so it's like you may not see each other for four years, and when you do, it's going, oh, how are you? How's it going? <laughs> the crack is mighty, as they say. How's the family? How's the family? Precisely. Um, another thing that uh, I know you're attached to that I'm really, really excited about is this Naked Gun. Oh, yeah. Sequel, uh, Naked Gun, I love those guys. You know, the, the, the airplane. Have you ever seen Top Secret, Liam? The, the movie that Sucker Abraham Sucker made in no, between I, Airplane no, and I the Naked Gun. I didn't see well, that. Well, there you go. Here's your movie recommendation for what's the it, day. What's it called again? It's, it's Fal Kilmer's first movie, but it's an insane comedy. It's about World War. It's a World War II spoof. But I it's also it. a spoof of Elvis movies. I saw it. You may have seen it. Okay. Yeah. All right. I so. have to say, I did not see the comedy. In it. <laughs> no, I'm dead, dead serious. I've saw right. it. Yeah. And Val does a bloody good Elvis impersonation. Certainly he does. In the movement he does. and stuff. But the comedy aspect didn't work for me at all. Oh, Liam has got some of the best sight gags in movie history. Yeah. It's got giant. Oh, oh, we'll get into it. I won't get into it. Anyway, I'm excited about the naked gun. So, where are we with that? What's uh, what's happening? It's, uh, there's a script written. They're still working on it. That's mm-hmm. a series of gags, you know. And uh, um, I can't tell you the plot because I'm, I'm just not allowed to. But it's good. And the opening sequence is deeply embarrassing and very very funny. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm here. And again, plot doesn't matter. It's all about sure. the characters. It's all about the guy. That's true. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And what else is coming up for you, Liam? I've got three films coming out this year. Uh, one I shot with Kieran Hines up in Donegal last year. And then, uh, oh yeah, I've got one coming out, I think the end of summer, uh, called Retribution, that we shot in Berlin. And I spend 95% of the movie sitting on a pressurized seat that's containing a bomb with my family in the back. Yeah. Wow. My son and daughter. That was fun. And then uh, I finished a film called Thug Uh uh, just before Thanksgiving, November, the end of November last year. So you're not slowing down. You're you're going for 200? Is that that the plan? No, it's just, I just like to work. And I listen, I still get, I still get, Deeply touched, a bunch of strangers want to employ me to do a film. Seriously, it's like such a kick, you know? Amazing. Well, Lyle Nelson, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, always man. a pleasure chatting. I will say, go and give Top Secret another chance. I will. I, look, I, look, I promise you I will. If you yeah. love Airplane, Mega Gun, you'll love that. Yeah. All right, brilliant. I will. Liam, thanks, man. Thanks, buddy. Okay, so that was Liam Neeson. Apologies if you needed subtitles for that, as our accents go steadily thicker.
Let's talk about some movies now. Mm. It's the reviews section of the show. There's a lot to get into this week. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the biggest film, which is probably Shazam, Fury of the Gods? Or do you want to start with the film that gave me a new lease of life, which is Rye Lane? Let's start with Rye Lane. Yay. It's good. Four stars then for Rye Lane. Let's <laughs> move on. To, no, uh, this is Rye Lane. Who wants to take Rye Lane? Rye Lane, yes. This is that rarest of beasts, uh, the good modern British rom-com, uh, I think more so because it's good modern British black romantic comedy, uh, which is, I don't, frankly, we just don't get enough of generally. This is Rain Alan Miller's film, stars David Johnson as Dom, uh, and he's a man on the rebound from this brutal breakup who, after a little bit of a cry session at his friend's art exhibition in the toilets, runs into the ebullient Yaz, played by Vivian O'Para, who you have already heard from. Uh, the two kind of hit it off. They spend a day together wandering around South London. They meet up with his ex and her new beau. Uh, Dom's former Dom's former best friend, uh, and they, you know, they just generally walk around chatting about life, the universe, and everything. It's kind of one of these things where I guess if before sunrise had taken place in like Peckham uh, instead of Vienna, it might look a lot like mm-hmm. this. And I think also if people know the area well, which I should add, I don't, but I have been informed, they don't fuck up the geography, no, which is always a nice it's really touch in these actually. films. Yeah. But as you've kind of alluded to, it's just a lovely, lovely, lovely little film. And and I think it's not just lovely because it's a mere 82 minutes, which is just wonderful because it never outstays its welcome. But it's fun. It's kind of fizzy. It's really bold and colourful. It uses an eye-popping palette and the locations and the sets and the costume design. Um, it's got some really funny devices. Uh, so you see kind of characters sucked into the retelling of each other's narratives and slightly surreal sort of flights of fancy, which is a really fun thing. There's like a top-down shop which browses the contents of toilet cubicles how the film starts which I thought was a really nice shot as well um, the, the two leads Johnson O'Para are hugely charismatic so just kind of yeah effortlessly charming hugely brilliant company they're just a delight to be around he's all kind of sad sack hangdog energy and she's this kind of live wire force of nature trying to pull him out of his own funk while maybe overcompensating for a little bit of internalised trauma of her own um, but as she said in the interview they were very aware that she was less close to being a manic pixie dream girl and do you know what I so was gonna I was gonna ask Helen that what she thought of that because back. I think she flirts with that. Mm. It flirts with that, but isn't but isn't that isn't no. quite no, she never crosses no. the line. Yeah, and it, it felt like, I wondered whether that was an intentional thing. They were kind of sending up that trope of the Manic mm. Pixie Dream Girl. Because it feels like she was that, but with edge and with teeth and with a real inner life. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was really, really cool. I just, look, I love a rom-com. I absolutely love a rom-com. And, you know, <laughs> I, a good, I do. And a, a good rom-com, they're fucking rarer than hen's teeth. So, and a good Brit-com rom-com best of all uh obviously i love richard curtis this is very much not richard curtis uh but it is like it's fresh it's fun it's kind of like a dizzy update of the formula and frankly i hope this leads to many more a revival of the good brit rom-com mm. thanks very much uh i, I would like that a lot it's mm-hmm. it's got such a sense of place as well like it is a recognizable london uh that we just don't see. You know, it's not all these American films where somebody comes to the UK and immediately falls in with the aristocracy. This is like, <laughs> these are average people. The, the houses are yeah. believable for the people that live in them. They look like our houses look. And it's just so refreshing and so exciting to see that. And yeah, it's also just really funny. You know, the art show at the beginning uh, is um, is amazing. It's amazing. Um and it's absolutely the kind of thing that that happens in Peckham. It is absolutely the kind of art show you get pressured into going to with your friends in your 20s. <laughs> so I just thought all of the detail, all of the energy of the film was so spot on. And then you have this great script, this 
brilliant direction, which is, you know, at times you're right, there's those showy moments, but she doesn't overdo it. She she reins it in and and, you know, manages it perfectly. When it's just two people talking, she'll let it be just two people talking and won't kind of over egg the pudding. I just thought it was mm-hmm. beautifully done. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I love this movie. I, I I think it's absolutely terrific. It's my favorite film of the year so far. Uh, if there's a better film than this, yay! Then we're frankly we're yeah yay absolutely. But I'll also be surprised because mm-hmm. I I think it was I, I think it's one of the best rom coms in years. Mm-hmm. Certainly the best rom com since Palm Springs, which obviously had its own thing going on as well. Yeah. So it's not purely a rom com. This is purely a rom com, uh, and it's great. It's so fucking good, and it's so infectious. It's pure joy. 82 minutes of pure joy. And even when it does flirt with rom-com conventions, and it does at some point flirt with rom-com conventions, which means that not always are the characters experiencing pure joy, it's still great to watch. It's still great. It's it's visually stunning. Great job from Rain Allen Miller, who is definitely one to watch and has been doing, I believe, great work in the world of advertising for for a long time as well. Johnson and Opara are going to be fixtures on our screen for years to come. Mm. We, I don't live too 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 far away from Peckham, but you know, I didn't really, I don't know the area that well. But I'm I'm going there. I got some recommendations from from uh, Vivian Opara and Rain Allen Miller in the. In the interview I did, so yeah, we're going. Uh, Fala and I are going to go. Flygerian sounds amazing. So it's a Nigerian restaurant in in Peckham, but we're going to go to. That's amazing. that's on the list for sure. Uh, but I don't love this movie because I got some new restaurant recommendations. <laughs> I love this movie because it is funny and witty and charming and just makes you from from pretty much from frame one slaps a great big smile on your face and it doesn't leave for eighty two minutes and it's eighty two minutes long. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> and stick around to the end of the credits because there's a really funny post credits yes. scene. Well, I missed that entirely. Do you need an excuse to see this movie again? Because honestly, I was just thinking I cannot wait to see this movie mm-hmm. again as I was watching it and hoping that it would stick the landing and it absolutely sticks the landing. So yeah, tremendous. We gave it four. I'd go five. I'd go five. In case you can't tell. <laughs> I'd go five. <laughs> it is absolutely tremendous. It's uh, 82 minutes long. You can watch this movie twice in the time it takes to watch a movie twice as long. Uh, speaking <laughs> wow. of movies that are twice as long, it's <laughs> <laughs> that brings us neatly to Shazam, Fury of the Gods, Hell's Bells. This is a return of Shazam. It is nearly twice as long. You're right. It's 140, not 180, but it's very close. Um, so yes, uh, David F. Sandberg is back directing. Zachary Levy is once again playing Shazam, um, aka the grown up superhero form of Billy Batson, who's once again Asher Angel, although he's barely in this film. And when he is in this film, again, the, the those, two, those two performances just do just not mesh up match. at all. don't match. This is one of my big issues no. with it. Anyway, I'll get to that in a second. But just just to set it up, <laughs> um, so Shazam is desperately trying to keep his his family all together. He's he's coming up with you know essentially superhero gigs for them to go out and do as a team around Philadelphia, whether the populace wants them to or not. Uh, and then comes along the daughters of Atlas Hespera, who's Helen Mirren, Calypso Lucy Liu, and Anthea Rachel Zegler, who throw things into chaos because they have a grudge that basically the Shazam team have taken the powers of the great gods and they want them back, uh, essentially. So there's a lot going on in this. There is a lot of world building. There's a lot of mythology. People keep having to stop and have a, a an exposition session to explain who's who and what's what and what's happening right now and what we need to do next to get the thing to stop the person to then do the other thing, <laughs> which is a bit exhausting because what was joyful about the first film 
was the relationship between these kids, was the story of this foster kid finding his forever family, essentially his home, um, his people, and sort of uh, a lot of that is kind of put in second place here a little bit, I think. And we spend so much time setting up these bad guys, giving more to Jaimon Hunsu's wizard to do, which is which is good because he's a lot of fun in this and he actually gets to do some comedy, which we don't often get to see from him. And But, but at the same time, it's all kind of plate spinning in the air. And you're right. I mean, it is a big problem with this with this uh, series. And I think I, we talked about it on the first film. We talked about it in the spoiler podcast and I think in the original review as well. The fact that while it's a really fun performance, Shazam does not feel like the same person as Billy does. They do not have anything in common. It's like the actors never met on set, never talked about how they were going to play it. Like the script is written for two different people. The the, the words used, yeah. the phraseology is to, is completely different. Yeah, Shazam is all like, oh man, whoa, can you believe that? Whoa, yeah. and then and Billy just talks like a human being. And <laughs> well, Billy is turning 18 in this movie. Yeah. He's about to turn 18. And it's a really interesting idea about that, about how he's about to age up out of the, the foster system and he's worried yeah. about that. And he's he's got all these dark, conflicting thoughts at, at his heart. He's a troubled teen. Yeah. And then you have Zachary Levi, who's, who's enormous fun in this yeah. role. And it, it's just, it's, there's this weird disconnect between this, you know, kind of Tom Hanks and Big-esque performance is you're obviously right it's like they haven't met they haven't discussed it but it's fun watching Shazam but it just doesn't just they doesn't don't marry. and actually if you, you see yeah. it when you see um Jack Dylan Grazer as his brother Freddie and his sort of Adam Brody-esque growing up version who who feel much more connected they feel much more connected they do and 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 so it really creates a contrast even within the film and and i'm glad that uh, jack gets a little bit more to do in this one he he gets to play a little bit more because honestly i think he's in some ways a more interesting character he is a character who has a physical disability in his normal life and doesn't as a superhero and of course that creates a whole interesting kind of dilemma to play with in a whole interesting situation that we haven't seen a million times so you know, there were there were things like that that I kind of wanted them to get into, and instead they're just like, uh, oh, monsters and action scenes and fights and whatever else. So uh, yeah, I, I just find this a lot less fun than the first one and a bit exhausting. And there are mid and post credit stings uh, setting up things to come, but whether they matter or not, very much I think remains to be seen. I enjoyed it more than you did. Um, I think it's pretty much on a par with the first film in terms of the the fun quotient. Oh, no. uh, it's, it's there. There is a there's a couple of gags that really really make me laugh. I think more than anything in the first movie. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a it's a decent fun time at the movies if you like your superhero movies, which obviously we have gone off massively <laughs> uh, as a culture in the last few months. Uh, three stars we gave this one. Three stars then for Shazam, Fury of the Gods. And we said last week that we would review 65 properly this week because, again, there was a ridiculous embargo in place on that, which made everyone think it was shit. And it's actually not shit. It's it's okay. Uh, there you go. That's a review of 65. <laughs> <laughs> Helen and James went to see this on Friday right? afternoon. Yeah. Had a big old Empire work date and you went along to see it. I'd already seen it. 
So what did you think? Do we all match up in in the it's not shit, it's actually okay? Yeah, it's camp? Yeah. it's exactly <laughs> what to quote. it's exactly what I wanted <laughs> yes. from my spaceman versus dinosaur movie. You know, there's a spaceman and he fights dinosaurs. Like job done. I know. Yeah. What do you want? What, like, what the fuck? Well, what, what do you want, want from me? Come on. What do you want? It's it's got, it is fun. It's got echoes of fun. um of Pitch Black without the very sort of clever you know character swap that pitch black does yeah. there's a there's a feeling of that certainly in, especially in the first act um but with adam driver acting his little hard eye and holding a you know laser gun and, and you know occasional dinosaur attacks i i just i'm a simple woman i don't require much more than that <laughs> yeah jimbo yeah, no, I I had a lot of fun with it. I, what was quite funny is like Helen Helen leaned over at one point near the beginning to point out the very American centric view of healthcare that they have in this film, which I thought was actually That's a really true, good yeah. point. The idea that all healthcare is paid for, like at point of use, you know, what I mean, the, the idea of socialized healthcare is wild to them because the whole premise of this is he's doing this job to pay for healthcare for his daughter so that was a, that was an interesting point but yeah it's 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 a spaceman crash lands on earth 65 million years ago and fights dinosaurs some of which are real and some of which i'm pretty sure are entirely fictional but uh yeah, it's fun there were some jumps in there it scared me mm. a little bit yeah. it doesn't do anything particularly surprising or sophisticated with the plotting like it's quite by the numbers mm. but i don't know that that's always a bad thing like it's it's it looks good it's fun he has some cool gadgets you know it, it has it has sort of very low key Last of Us energy. Him with the mm. kind of adopted daughter trying to get her to this this other place on Earth, but it's you know it's a giggle. I I had, I had fun with it. I, exactly as you said. I, I don't know what more you really want from from Adam Driver versus Dinosaur. <laughs> It's, which is, of course, what the movie should have been called. Which is what it should have been called, yes. It would have done a lot better at the box office as yeah. a result. Uh, again, I have to echo what these guys have already said. I don't think it's as fun as I would like it to be. It's interesting because I don't think they that the, the writers and directors, uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods, Beckham Woods, have opted for the fun mm. card. They've opted for the intense Emotional. thrill ride card. Yeah. And gone for a bit of emotion. And they've also done it basically, I think, as a, a bit of a, a writing exercise. Mm-hmm. And that, that exercise is in how do you generate tension when there's just two characters in a movie and they're being attacked every five minutes. But you know, with a fair degree of certainty, that neither of them are going to die at least until we get into the third act. So how do you do that? And I actually thought they did a pretty good yeah. job. Same. Of, of generating that tension. And uh, I spoke to them for a spoiler special. I've also spoken to David F. Sandberg for a Shazam spoiler special. Both of those will be on the spoiler special subscription feed at some point in the next two weeks, I'm guessing. I've got a lot of spoiler specials recorded over the next few weeks. Jesus H. Christ. Um, we're doing a Jesus H. Christ spoiler <laughs> special as well. Um, <laughs> we're talking to Jesus H. Christ. Um, yeah, and they were talking about a lot of that stuff about the dinosaurs that you know that there are fictionalized versions because not to give away what they said too much but they're looking at that from his point of view he doesn't know what dinosaurs are so that's what they would have looked like to him rather than them being anatomically correct or rather mm. than that's a t-rex that's a velociraptor they're going well this is what he would have just seen them as monsters mm. so so they took a bit of liberty with how they they look and how they move Three stars then for 65. Um, yeah, and I think that's absolutely fair on the money mm. with that one. 
Hell's Bells, next up is Pearl, which is, were you railing against prequels earlier on? I can't remember. I, okay, yes, I did, but I, I can make exceptions. I, you know, I yes. have nuances. Godfather Part I 2. Contain, I contain multitudes. And uh, I'm Jones making an exception for Pearl because it's bloody great. Uh, it is a prequel to X, which came out last year, and it is about... Uh, uh, well, very minor spoiler for X. One of Mia Goth's characters in that film, uh, but this is set Uh-oh. years and years before. This is set about sixty-one years before Texas, nineteen eighteen, and uh, Goth plays Pearl, who is a, a young woman who she got married. Uh, just to escape her parents. And then her husband went off to war and basically left her at home with them. So as we meet her, she is dreaming of Hollywood stardom. She's going to the cinema whenever she can to escape, e- even though it's you know very early cinema, obviously silent movies and so on. Um, she still dreams of movie stardom. And that is her hope and that is her dream. And um, and yet she's stuck in this in this house looking after the animals on the farm, singing and dancing to the animals because there's no other audience available and looking after um, her, her parents uh, much against her own desires and wishes. Um, and wouldn't you know it, it all goes to bloody shit. Um, this huh. this it, it ends up uh, her, her fantasies kind of get out of control. Her desires overtake her and um, uh, the killing essentially starts but what is what is great about this and what i loved about this is that it is shot like a sort of classic golden age hollywood mm. musical like this this opens with a shot that could have come straight out of the wizard of oz <laughs> uh, and and it's just this bright technicolor fantasy land version of a slasher movie and just the two things put together i i thought was completely barmy and disorienting and and weirdly charming. I I was I was <laughs> absolutely swelled up. Is is this weird thing where you're kind of rooting for the multiple murderer? You know, you're you're just like she just wants to get ahead, guys. To a point. To a right? point. Very <laughs> much the, to a I point. I think she loses you reasonably. <laughs> okay, with the whole with the whole skewering <laughs> of the, the whole and murdering the, yeah, and the and the, and the, and the, and the Sure. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. you know, but it's a it's a brilliant performance. It is it is an instant kind of horror icon. I think that there's a, there's a smile in this film at the very end that will stay mm. with you. Um, I I thought it was terrific, absolutely terrific. Crucially, I don't think you need to have seen X. No, I and the haven't. The only reason I say that is, I, yeah, well, quite the same here. I haven't seen X, and I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I will say it's the best film you see this week in which someone has sex with a scarecrow. So that's uh, that's nice. Well, let's hope it's the best. Um, yeah, I, I think that's so to say. It's, yeah, it's it's it's. Very stylish. I like the, all the Golden Age stuff from the the hyper saturation to the the music to the titles, mm. all of that kind of stuff. I thought was was lovely. I also like Pearl, and I thought her psychology is someone kind of starved of love who's trying to find it wherever she can, even if she has to kill people yeah. to get it. Was pleasantly detailed, so that was nice. Um, it's a little bit weird, a little bit surreal, but yeah, Goth, Goth is is genuinely outstanding. She is incredible. And she kind of she gives Pearl that kind of like real sort of like raw fury and it's very very gnarly in places mm. like there was ooh, a couple of bits i was like ooh, 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 i don't know if i can watch this the thing she does with a hay fork not to be underestimated yeah. um but yeah i yeah but i, I mean i maybe i probably wasn't as taken with it as maybe you were like i really liked it but i just i i, I got a bit queasy at times but oh, yeah i was curious sure. enough from watching this to want to now go and watch x and in fact then watch maxine the third film in this little sequence uh when it comes out absolutely so, um yeah yeah 
Good, good, good. I haven't had a chance to see uh, Pearl yet, but sounds great. Four stars then for Pearl. And finally this week, we have Boston Strangler, which is a retelling of the story of the Boston Strangler, which, of course, has been depicted on film and TV before. And you may think you know the story, but this film is setting out to say that actually you don't. Jimbo, tell us about this one. Uh, This is Matt Ruskin's adaptation of... The Notorious Strangler Case, which consumed Boston in the 1960s, I think. Correct. That's right. Yes. After 13 women were killed. Um, I think kind of it, what's interesting to this is like it takes a different approach because like, I guess just as critical to the police investigation was the work of two very key female reporters, uh, Loretta McLaughlin, played by Kira Knightley here, and Jean Cole, played by Carrie Coon. Um, and a kind of so this film sees them as well as kind of battling 50s sexism. Those two are the ones to kind of connect the murders, but also the ones who are unwilling to accept the solutions that the authorities were ultimately coming up with. Um, so like as Chris mentioned, this isn't the first time we've seen this story. Like the 68 Curtis Fonda film obviously covers it. We've had it on TV. We've had it everywhere. I think what sets this one apart is the perspective because it takes Cole and McLaughlin's perspective rather than the police's. Um, uh, and it's so it's less a kind of police serial killer thriller and more a kind of fourth estate thriller that happens to feature a serial killer. What I would say about this, and it seems really obvious, but don't read up on the case before watching it. <laughs> Sounds really obvious, but it will genuinely ruin the film because there are a few twists and turns. And it's a yes. large part of what keeps this interesting. Um, and I think the other thing that works well in this is how it kind of underlines the main story with era-specific sexual politics. And mm-hmm. it sees the kind mm-hmm. of two female reporters like putting the police on notice, which is which is a lot of fun. Um, Kira Knightley is very good in this. It is always weird, I think, when you hear her kind of abandon her cut glass posh English accent and replace it with an American twang. My uh, name but, is Domino Harvey. Indeed. <laughs> but she managed to pull off a kind of Boston. <laughs> She's from Boston here. So she has that kind of uh, very uh, TEDx. She's pack in the car. Pack in the car. <laughs> It's in a car. Anyway, I stop I'd doing like that. to apologise to the people of Boston. <laughs> uh, Jenny, I don't think there's an American accent that uh, actors who aren't from that place like to do more than a Boston accent. Not even like your, your Southern accent, your, your, your y'all and all that. I, I think yeah. if you give it an actor, you say, you're from Boston, they go, fucking yes, get in. I can do car and pack and do all that sort of stuff. Hers is quite light. She doesn't lay it on too thick. She so doesn't, it's fine. No. It's fine. And you do root for her in this, kind of as this woman who's being sort of forced to write toaster reviews where she wants to break into to proper I reporting. want to know more about that toaster to be honest <laughs> was it good do, is it a five star toaster I don't know <laughs> yeah, we don't um, know like she's got like other stuff going on she's got home life here her husband clearly rankles at being the primary caregiver to their children I think that's handled pretty well yeah. uh, it gives the character stakes beyond her job which is nice Chris Cooper's in this as her yes. kind of irascible editor he's always good value and of course Carrie Coon who plays this slightly more seasoned hack and of course she's Carrie Coon so she basically acts everyone else off the screen any moment <laughs> she's there um, it's all shot in this this lovely kind of muted noirish palette which gives it kind of a nice era specific tone see which is I nice. didn't like that you didn't, didn't like I it I didn't like that I think I that's of time and place. I know, because I feel that that's the sense of time and place that's been imposed on that time and place by filmmakers. <laughs> and it's become a bit of a, it's become a bit of shorthand, you know, yeah. where like Steven Soderbergh, yeah. you know, in traffic, he, you know, color coded all the different places yes. and then and then it became kind of shorthand to go, now we're in Mexico. You can tell we're in Mexico because it's yellow. <laughs> And it's a little bit like that with the 60s. Believe it or not, folks, I mean, I wasn't alive back then. I'm not that fucking old, but believe it or not, during the 60s, I believe things were in actual colour. That's not true. And there was vibrancy. <laughs> and not everything was drab. Or the, I remember Lauren Fern describing Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy years ago uh, as you know everything being the colour of a filing cabinet. And that's what this is. <laughs> yeah, everything is the colour of a filing cabinet. Everything's the fucking yeah. colour of a filing cabinet. And it wasn't like that. I've seen pictures of my parents in the 60s and primary colours existed. I firmly <laughs> I believe the 60s looked exactly 
like this. Um, so but that's I, the I one didn't, thing. I yeah. didn't mind that. It has to be said. I also quite like the fact that most most of most of almost all of the murders take place off camera, so it's not lurid, which I thought yes, was a nice. It's uh, not that at all. A nice touch. It's, it's um, basically it's like Zodiac, but a much shorter Zodiac and without the surety of touch. Really, kind of me. my feeling on this is it's quite. Like the reporting aspect is interesting, but it's quite from a serial killer thriller thing. It's quite basic. I think if you're looking for a knife edge serial killer thing, you are better off with Zodiac or Seven or, frankly, the two seasons of Mindhunter. I don't think this does does that. I think what it does is slightly different. I think the story is quite labyrinthine enough that it makes for a compelling watch. I do think it's a bit hamstrung by the facts because the story's conclusion because it's factual, is, I would argue, maybe a little unsatisfying. And I think it's a really nice tribute to these two great real-life reporters who did amazing work. Uh, And it also incorporates some of the more recent uh, information that's come about through DNA Mm -hmm. evidence, so it gives Mm -hmm. you a little bit of extra information there. But for me, this is more of a character study of these two people rather than a a proper killer thriller. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, But, you know, it's it's well-made and well-mounted as as far as it goes. And... uh, uh, we don't have an official Empire review yet, but I'm in three-star camp, Jimbo, where are you? Yes, three. Very three much stars. three for me. All right, let's give it an official Empire podcast review rating of three stars. Three stars then for Boston Strangler, which is on Disney+. Plus. We should point that out as well. It is on Disney+, Plus this week. Uh, everything else, I believe, that we've talked about is in cinemas. Uh, Rye Lane's in cinemas, Shazam's in cinemas, 65 is still in cinemas, and Pearl is in cinemas as well. So knock yourself out. Have a great time. But go see Rye Lane, folks. Go yes. see Rye Lane. Thank me afterwards. And on that note, that is it. I think, oh no, wait, there's not, because we have one last thing, one last thing up our sleeve, which is uh, our Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania spoiler special is going up very, very soon. I will be finishing it just after I have edited this podcast. So I'm guessing sometime next March will probably be when I get around to that. But uh, Ant-Man the Wasp Quantumania has been out in cinemas long enough now for us to give it the spoiler special treatment. And in that spoiler special, I have in-depth chats with the film's director, Peyton Reed, and the film's writer, Jeff Loveness. And obviously, if you listen to the spoiler special, if you subscribe to the spoiler special feed, then you can have the whole thing. But right now, we're going to give you brief excerpts from the beginning of both of those interviews. So obviously, if you haven't seen Quantumania by now, skip this bit. Obviously, skip the next 10-15 minutes and then come back for the end of the show if that's what you want to do. If you want to come back for the bit where I go, and that's it for the Empire Podcast this week. If not, you can just stop listening no, right don't now. Stop. Anyway, come here's... back because then you get to hear me plug pilot and pilot. Oh, Jesus oh, Christ. Stop listening. Stop listening right now. <laughs> stop listening right now. Run as far away. Throw your podcast device into the nearest river, into the nearest receptacle. Set it on fire before but you do so. Then they'll miss me banging on about the Last of Us oh, spoiler special, God, Chris. Two already. Last of Us spoiler specials. But Helen, they're now up. People can listen to them and they finish watching the show because the finale has aired. It's all very exciting. Anyway. Here is Peyton Reed, followed by Jeff Loveness. Do please enjoy. And then come back for the end of the show. It's up to you. We are delighted to be joined on this Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania spoiler special by the film's director, Peyton Reed. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, Got to ask the big question that's in everyone's lips. Seven holes, Peyton? Talk me through that. Can you? Yeah. There's, um, there's some you know, discussion. It's, it's not something you really think about. Like mm. someone hits you with a question out, out of left field, you, you have to think about it. One, two... Three, four, five. <laughs> You're counting ears. You're yeah, counting yeah. okay. Ear, ho- ear oh, holes. These are holes. Oh, but I just, yeah, but they're plugged. Oh, you anyway, feel the eardrum a, kind of? Uh, a, yeah, I think the eardrum discounts it as yeah. a hole. They're holes. Yeah. They're holes. They're holes. All right. Belly button. Yeah. They count. Not a hole. Okay. No, an in, an indentation, <laughs> or if you have an Audi, 
It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a whole thing. It's oh, a whole thing. Yeah. What's not up for discussion is the butthole. That is, that is in. That Definitely has made it in. That is yeah. a hole. That is a hole. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Paul's reaction in that moment is perfection. Uh, were there many different takes? There were many, many different takes. That one just struck this sweet spot of just stopping down this entire epic Marvel movie while he thinks in his head how many holes he has and it struck us as funny. <laughs> and it's the kind of thing that, that Rudd just uh, sells so perfectly with his timing. Yeah. And listen, there's tons and tons to talk about. There, there's a lot to get into thematically. There's a lot to get into in terms of what this means for the MCU. There's, I want to talk about a lot about the visuals because I think you really push the envelope with the visuals here. One of those things is MODOK. Yes. I have to talk about MODOK. Let's do it. We can talk about Kang. Let me. That guy. That guy is insignificant compared to to Modok, <laughs> uh, because I didn't know going into this movie that this the the Ant Man trilogy would be a Darren Cross redemption story. <laughs> yeah. Where did that idea come from? That Modok was going to be Darren. Well, as we started uh, formulating the story, we talked about like, okay, we have Kang. We know Kang, who Kang is. What he's going to do. Does Kang need any sort of a uh, you know right hand man, a henchman, or anything? And Modoc has sort of been waiting in the wings on several different Marvel movies. Like this is, I heard this after the fact. Like they've been talking about like how, uh, when, possibly even why do we introduce Modoc <laughs> into the live action MCU? Um, so we were talking about this thing, and one of the things I really wanted to do with Quantum Mania is to pay off a lot of the things we set up in the first two movies. Obviously, the Quantum Realm, Janet's time in the Quantum Realm, progressing the Scott Cassie story, uh, Scott and Hope, and all that stuff. But um, Darren Cross was this thing where we killed him. I remember the day that I told Corey on the first movie, like, you know, you're going to die. And because there was discussion early on and it was like, you're going to die. And he was really bummed out. I think as he had felt like, I want to see Yellow Jacket and Darren Cross progress in the MCU. And it was not to be. Yeah. So one night as we were doing this, I was thinking about all these things and Modoc and I was, I went back, I was looking at the first movie and he, you know, he shrinks before that, you see his arm go small and it just hit me like, holy shit, could we do this? Could we retcon MODOK so that it's Darren Cross? And then it just sort of, uh, a light went on and it made sense on so many levels. He's got a pre-existing relationship with Hank Pym and, and Scott Lang. Yeah. Uh, if he survives this trip into the quantum realm, he's going to have a big ax to grind. Uh, he's already in a yellow jacket suit of armor that could be refashioned into the, possibly this MODOK thing. So we... We talked about it. I, I pitched it to Stephen Broussard and to Kevin Feige. They were way into it. And then I very vividly remember calling Corey Stoll, who at this point I hadn't talked to in a, a couple of years. We've all been busy. Uh, and uh, I said, what if I told you this would happen and this would happen? He starts giggling on the other end of the phone. Because the thing you don't know about Corey necessarily, he grew up a massive comics fan. He, he knows Modoc. And I said, there's a chance that Darren Cross could have been repurposed as like, yes, yes, I'm in, I'm in. How do we do it? I, he just started, I said, well, let me just pitch to you the rest of the thing. And I pitched it. He was so down for it for every reason. Redemption arc, he's back. Yeah. yeah. Um, giant floating head, that appealed to him. Uh, and I think just to be back and to be able to play around in the world again and, and with Rudd and just the whole thing. Um, but mostly it was the big head. He, the he big head. The idea. And then also, you know, you had this instant connection with a now 18-year-old Cassie Lang and it really struck us as we were writing that, you know, this is a guy who entered her bedroom when she was six and tried to literally tried to kill her. And what would it be like for Cassie to see this guy again? It might be kind of traumatic. And that it helps Cassie's arc becoming a hero that she has this 
something else from her past. You know, Janet, Janet has put the past behind her. And now, you know, of course, it's caught up with her. She has to deal with it. But Cassie's got to deal with her past, too. Uh, and then it led us to this idea of this insane, do we give Darren Cross a redemption arc? <laughs> and Jeff Loveness and I love the idea that in MODOK's mind, MODOK is the big bad in the movie. In his mind, he's the bad guy in Quantumania, yeah. not Kang. Yeah. Uh, and he just relishes this whole reveal with everybody, with Scott, with Hank, like, it's me. And, and they're confused. It's like, they've forgotten about Darren Cross. A lot, a lot has happened since. You know, Scott's become an Avenger. So many things have happened. But to MODOK, it's all still fresh in his mind. We, we liked that idea. It was yeah. a crazy uh, tonal choice, right? Uh, but we decided we, got, we have to do this. Okay, so that was a little bit of Peyton Reed from the Sporter Special, and now here's a little bit of Jeff Loveness from the Sporter Special. This one was on Zoom about a couple of weeks after the movie came out. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on this Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania Sporter Special by the film's writer Jeff Loveness. How are you? Hey, I'm doing all right, man. Good, good, good. Hit me with it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get straight into the big questions. How's the Kang Dynasty end? Oh, a cane gives it all up and opens a bed and breakfast in Maine and realizing that's the last frontier he hasn't conquered. Northeastern <laughs> tourism during uh, the shoulder season. Does he go to Stephen King's house for an, on a sort of tourist type thing? You know, he wanted to, but he just didn't have the time. It's a really busy <laughs> upkeep on the place. No, I, uh, we, got, we got something of an ending in mind. I uh, uh, can't say too much, but, you know, Kang's up to something, man. He's up to something. Imagine if you'd spilled the beans. I, well, I think I've spilled enough in my time. So I, maybe that's, I'll talk to my therapist about self-sabotage. That might, this could be the chance. Maybe ask me in about 15 minutes and I'll do it. This is it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've done this interview a thousand times before, Jeff. I, I, I yeah. Have I interviewed you before? By the way? Oh, oh God. You're like Kane as well. My God. All, all the Marvel writers are blended into one. I mean, did you write the Did you write the Captain America? Is that we're just one plaid shirt now? Yeah, we're all named a combination of Matt and Chris, and we're all thirty eight. Uh, well, you know, I tried. I gave it a good old college try, as as you guys you guys say in the states. You know, just in case your defenses were low and you just blurted it out and go, "Well, Kang Dynasty ends like this." Chris, I'm I'm glad you asked, but hey, oh. I, I got to get better at this, man. You got to. I'm building up my uh, my mind defenses because I am such a blabber. I talk all the time. Like I do, legitimately, legitimately think I am going to spoil it and like see two billion dollars burn up in front of me. <laughs> That's what happens. Kevin drives around to your house with two billion dollars in cash, and he just burns yeah. it. And he goes, "This is what you could have had, Loveness. This is what Basically. you could have had." Uh, anyway, I do have questions about Quantumania, and <laughs> you'll be delighted to know because it's a film. That whenever I spoke to you for the magazine a couple of yeah. months ago now, uh, you told me with ever you escalating got me in trouble for the Jodorowsky's Dune. <laughs> that was you. That was me. <laughs> that was you. Shit. All right. Sorry for that. <laughs> I Sorry can never show my head in film Twitter again. <laughs> no, it was fun. That was like I I love saying stuff like that. No, it was it, honestly, honestly, it's a it's a comparison. That I think that that is on point because there's some stuff in this movie that visually and conceptually just blew my mind, and that's one of the things I was I was talking about because you were talking with an ever escalating sense of glee about the shit that you were getting away with in this film. Yeah, and then I saw the film. I've seen it twice now, and and you know you have 
sentient buildings <laughs> that that from a certain angle look like dicks. So that's that's one thing. You have you have what else do you have? You have Drink the Ooze. You have one of the right. best universal translators I've ever seen. You have aliens that actually look and feel like aliens. You have Feb and his obsession with holes. It's just it's a it's a sort of panoply of of madness. Um you know, what made you giddiest? What concept made you get us to get in? Yeah, yeah. Oh man, sounds first of all, it sounds like I have a lot of Freudian work to do. Uh, <laughs> the dick buildings, that was not my idea. That was someone else. So I'll take that off the table. Uh now I just got giddy at the like uh, well, honestly, like Veb and well, Modoc in particular, I'm sure we'll talk about him later, but like mm-hmm. being able to triple down on a sort of like in a lower comedy key and then like have that guy carry through the movie in a very serious movie and then have that sort of like completely unearned stoic only in his mind death and everyone else being such good people that they decide to kind of just let him have the win. Like, I think that's such a, you can only do that in like an Ant-Man Marvel comedy. And I'm so happy we got that in there. I think that Modoc death is my favorite thing. The thing that made me so excited, but then to double back on what you said, like we had a chance to do actual aliens like you were saying like we we get to have things that don't have biology modeled after humans you know it's not going to be a star trek episode from the 90s you don't have to just put like a weird you know cone on their head or a little like ear ear ridge or something it was great to have like an open canvas for it and that's where veb came from that's where quaz came from like playing with different parts of biology and uh, I don't know, man, Like I, I saw this as an opportunity to do a really big swing on a canvas that no one's done before because we had more biological and, and, and quantum, you know, things as opposed to spaceships and, and like deserts and dune. But um, and then you get to ground it all like a fun light on its feet family adventure comedy that has this heavy hitter villain coming in who's going to, you know, spark off the next, you know, couple years of movies like. That to me, I, I, it just seemed like it was a fun experience all around. It's interesting. I, I do want to talk about more about Mudok, and I, I have to say, I think twenty-seven or maybe even twenty-nine percent of my interview with Peyton was talking about Mudok. But Good. Make, let's make it fifty. <laughs> but he draws you in. There's that's been my favorite thing about like all the reactions, like people like love Modoc or they hate him or they're confused by him. And that to me is like the, the success of the movie. Like, I love that he has a visceral response to everybody. And by the end, you feel sorry for this guy. You kind of see where he's coming from. We all just need someone to see us in our life. Let's make this a, a, a deep dive on Modoc. Anything you want. Let's do it. I mean, but, but that's the thing. I mean, he the uh, the reactions to him from all the different characters who meet him uh, pretty much again run the gamut of like it's it's pretty much the variations on what the fuck has happened to you, Darren. But yeah, I love I love Hope's reaction to him at the end, where she's just like Darren. <laughs> she just can't believe yeah. she's missed the whole thing. Evangeline was great, and yeah, like she that. Oh, I'm glad you picked up on that joke. That was one of my favorite little touches of like, yeah, she out of everyone probably knows Darren the best and she doesn't see him the whole movie till the end and having her come in with the same reaction was really uh, satisfying. She had good timing on that. Um, but yeah, man, I mean this movie, like Peyton and I just committed ourselves to going weird and bonkers and having like elevated jokes and heart, like family movie heart with like, and then you just knew Jonathan was there just to hit a home run on his end. Um, it was a joyful experience making it. 
Okay, so that was Peyton Reed and Jeff Loftness. And if you want to hear more, if you want to hear more of those interviews and about two hours of me and Helen and James banging on about Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, <laughs> I realise that may not be a selling point, but <laughs> if you do, and obviously if you want to get all the other spoiler specials that we're going to be doing over the next few weeks, Shazam, Fury of the Gods, 65, John Wick, Chapter 4, Scream 6. I mean, my God, it is a truly bountiful gift. Weekly episodes of The Mandalorian are coming your way dun, as dun. well. It is fantastic much better value i would say than pilot plus wow uh which so, is a whole pound a month cheaper yes but we give you more wow. and better guys, so, guys let's all just get along shall we <laughs> <laughs> and if you're excited about the dear santa news well bar humbug still exists <laughs> And if you're excited about uh, Quentin Tarantino's 10th film in which a woman is versus Hollywood, uh, which is about a woman versus Hollywood, I don't know, then pick up Women versus Hollywood, the fall and rise of women in film. Hooray! You got the, you got the title right. I've always known the title, Helen. I've always known the title. The title of your book has been <laughs> the real magic inside me all along. Ah. Uh, <sighs> On that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by... Good week next week. Yeah. Good week next week. I can't remember who it is. Yes, I can. It is. We'll be joined by Winston himself, (gasps) the manager of the continental New York and the legend that is Lovejoy and Al Swearengen. It is Ian McShane himself. Very excited about that. And we'll also be joined by Alexander Skarsgård, uh, the star of Brandon Cronenberg's new film, Infinity Pool, which apparently is the goriest time you'll have at the cinema this year. Oh, boy. I'm not sure I can I face know. it. I think Evil Dead Rise mm. might might just top it. And if failing that, Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. Orkidoki, I have killed the 20 peoples. Uh, anyway, until we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion, and it's goodbye with my two colleagues of such a lethal cunning. S- Riverside name, sorry, we're not in Squadcast. Riverside name, <laughs> Diamonds and Pearl. It is the green clad Helen O'Hara. Goodbye, Helen Toodaloo. O'Hara. It is goodbye from a man who needs no Riverside name. He is simply known as James. Goodbye, James Dyer. Goodbye, Chris. On the Pilot Plus podcast this week, you can go and see. What the Jefferson? We've got David Diggs on this week's show. Oh, that's uh, good. Might yeah, listen to that. He's pretty cool. Indeed. And we've got Penn Badgley on for our U Season 4 Part 2 spoiler special as well. So, see, next times. week we've got Sword Badgley. We need to get those two together. <laughs> Penn is mightier than the sword. Yeah, that's yeah. the joke, James. Thanks I know, for, I know. Thanks I for hammering to, home. I wanted, to, I wanted to spell it out. I thought that was important. This is the kind of banter that you get on Pilot Plus for only one ninety nine oh, a month. So. <laughs> well done, Netflix viewers. You've earned your pen, Badgley. Speaking of which, we actually review Stephen Knight's Great Expectations, which includes Matt uh, Berry as Mr. Pumblechuck. Uh, wasn't what I hoped. You didn't like it. I haven't seen it as a joke about Great, great expectations. expectations. This is from Hot Shots oh, Part 2. I see. Charlie Sheen you goes, I've been reading a primitive form I've been of reading humor. Great Expectations and someone says, what was it like? And he goes, it wasn't what I hoped because Great Expectations is playing the fucking I title. I, I understand now. 
I understand. Is there any chance St. Patrick can drive James out of this podcast? <laughs> That'd be lovely. Uh, anyway, it is goodbye for me. The Banshee of Ed Sheeran. Ah, Jesus, so it is. The Banshee of Ed Jesus. Sheeran, Begara, and uh, Shalady and Shamrock and all that, all that stuff. You are uh, a I'm walking off now hate to- crime. <laughs> I really am. I'm off to edit this. Thank you, Helen. It's the nicest thing you've ever said to me about me. Uh, I'm off now to edit this podcast and I have three hours in which to do so. Wish me luck, people. Wish me luck. Jeez, I'm going to need to luckily Irish and then some. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Figara! Monster. They are always after your lucky charms. They're always after me lucky charms. (laughs) 